The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Seed money. Tell me. Tell me about all this dirtiness. <laughs> Tell me about this, these monsters and the money that they make. Yeah. Uh, How'd you get involved in this, first of all? Yeah, How, sure. why, Why'd this become uh, your field of study? Well, thanks, Jeff, for having me on. This My is, pleasure. This thanks is awesome. for being here. Yeah. I'm excited to talk to you about this. Yeah, so- Very I, important subject, right? Yeah, for me it was. I, you know, I, it really started with the first project I worked on, the first book I wrote, which was The History of Coca-Cola and its environmental impact around the world. You were just telling us that Pepsi is actually older than Coke, which is surprising. Dr. Pepper. Yeah, Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper's older? Yeah, yeah Dr. Pepper's older, weirdly. And it's, you think of it as like the, you know. Yeah, I thought it was like the new kid on the block. Yeah, exactly. That's the A oldest? 1885. Not the oldest, but it's older than Coke. What's Coke, the oldest? Coke was 1886. I don't really even know what the oldest one would be. So Dr. Pepper came along first, then Coca-Cola, and then Pepsi? And then Pepsi later. So Pepsi is still bullshit. Pepsi's <laughs> Look, you're talking to a guy from Atlanta, <laughs> so I agree with you there. What does yeah. that mean? Is well, Atlanta's Coke from like, Atlanta? yeah, Coke's from Atlanta. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, when we were growing up, it was like in the water. You had to drink Coca-Cola. In fact, when you went any soft drink, you just say, I want a Coke. Yeah, nobody says I'd like a Pep. Well, maybe they do. <laughs> but the thing about Pepsi is like it never had cocaine in it, did it? No. Actually, this is this is relevant. I mean, so this this was the beginning of this book because I was doing that. I was looking at all the ingredients that go into Coca-Cola and saying, okay, where what's in the drink, first of all, because it's from my hometown. That's where it started. I said, okay, I want to find out all these natural resources in the product. And, you know, is Coca in the drink? And- also, caffeine. We'll get to that. That's how it connects yeah. to Monsanto. But um, Coca was the most interesting, actually, because I thought, you know, it's called Coca-Cola. So does it have cocaine in it? Um, and so I went back to look at that. And turns out, yeah, you know, trace amounts. back Still? In, in the beginning. No, no, no. In the beginning. Yeah, but this is what's interesting about the history of, <laughs> of the drink. So this is 1886. Back then, the coca leaf was actually seen as something that was Medicinal, Medicinal, right? you Innocuous. know? Absolutely. And everyone was using the coca leaf. I mean, there was a drink called Vin Mariani. It was actually a wine, a, a, a red wine that was mixed with coca leaves. Wow. So it kind of had a little kick to it. And like Queen Victoria of England drank this stuff. Ulysses S. Grant, our president, was like, woo, you know, coca wine. This is awesome. And, uh, and even the Pope, actually. I, I wonder if communion would have had, you know, Vin Mariani. We would all be Catholic mm. or something. But, um, but so it was really popular. And this guy, this guy who was down on his luck, John Pemberton, who started Coca-Cola in Atlanta, he wanted to make a Coca drink himself. And so he made this. Originally, Coke was actually a wine. It was like a wine of Coca. It was a red wine mixed with Coca leaves. Exact knockoff of that drink that was really popular. And, um, and then Prohibition hits Atlanta. Because we're in the Protestant South in the 1880s. And so he has to take out the alcohol. And so he creates this non-alcoholic drink, Coca-Cola, that has the coca leaf in it. They weren't concerned about the coca. They were concerned about alcohol. Uh, and it, it remained in the drink uh, throughout the 20th century. And what kind of dose would it, would it have in it? Very small. You know, and this, I think, is important. You know, people equate the coca leaf with you know, cocaine, because yes, you can make cocaine, like street cocaine, from, you know, processing all these coca leaves. But if you go to Peru today, or you go to certain parts of South America, people chew coca leaves. It's, it's a normal practice. It's been going back thousands of years, to the Inca even. Um, and 
So it's it's very small amounts. We're not talking about like, in fact, you'd probably get a bigger hit from like, a, a, you know, experience from a cup of espresso from Starbucks. Mm. Um, but interestingly, the reason that cocaine became taboo and why it got pulled from the drink had nothing to do with national laws in the country, which was so interesting when I was studying it. It had everything to do with racism, actually, in the South, because there was a concern that cocaine was contributing to black crime in Atlanta, which was being, of course, blown up by segregationists and white supremacists. And Asa Candler, who was a white guy in Atlanta, didn't want to have anything to do with that. So he decides kind of quietly to take out the cocaine. But here's the interesting, interesting thing, Joe. They kept the coca leaf as one of their secret ingredients. Yeah. It, it's, so secret ingredient number five, by the way, Coke doesn't like talking about this. This is not part of their history that they like discussing. Um, but it's clear as day in the archives. You can see it. So it's called merchandise number five, the fifth secret ingredient in Coca-Cola. And I like the name. Isn't it merchandise number five? <laughs> well, the whole idea is that you name right. things so right. that no one asks questions, right? right. right? Um, what's merchandise number five? Also, that, that ingredient includes a little bit of the cola nut, um, mm. which is from uh, West Africa, actually. And it was originally in there because it has caffeine, another kind of caffeine kick. Um, that's where Coca-Cola comes from. But cola, by the way, is with a K, the actual cola nut. Anyway, that's merchandise number five. And it's basically the flavor of the coca leaf, um, the essence of the coca leaf. And the way it works is these leaves are brought in from Peru is actually where Coca-Cola sourced it. And that was crazy. I had to track down, okay, where are they getting their coca leaves from? And there's this company called Maywood Chemical Company. Today, the company's called Steppen Chemical Company. Is that in New Jersey? It is in New Jersey, exactly. And Maywood, New Jersey. Do yeah, they're, no, they're the ones who process it and they make medical grade cocaine out of it and then use the flavor aspect of it for Coca-Cola. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, technically at first, as you, as you put it, most of the cocaine was going for pharmaceutical uses and for, you know- Lidocaine. All sorts of things like yeah. that they use for legitimate purposes. But Coke needed actually so much flavoring. Think about their brand, right. it's so big. Like wheatgrass juice, that you gotta squeeze a lot to get, <laughs> exactly. get a cup. So they had to like come up with this special, I love it. You can't make this stuff up. This is why history is fun. There's a special exemption in our laws for what are called special leaves from Peru. And if anybody looking at it is saying, well, what the hell are these special leaves, you know? And they're special because they're allowed to come into the United States exclusively, basically, to create the flavoring extract for Coca-Cola. A lot of people call it the Coca-Cola Joker. How closely do you think they monitor that supply? <laughs> you know, I mean- Very closely. They would have to. Yeah. Like if a, a bundle or two fell off a truck here or there, <laughs> exactly. that could be extremely profitable. Right, I talked to somebody once, they said, so is there like a pile of cocaine somewhere up in New Jersey, you know, where this is happening? And uh, you know, I don't think that's the case. But here's here's the crazy part too. This is what's fun about tracing these stories of ingredients because they lead you to places you never thought you'd go, like this book, which we'll talk about. But um, it got weird. If that's not weird, it got weirder in the 60s um, because Coca-Cola wanted to figure out a way to make coca leaves in the United States, to grow their own coca leaves. They weren't satisfied with this trade with Peru. And these are declassified DEA documents at the National Archives. This is not like, you know, uh, yeah, uh, something crazy. You can see it, and actually, it's in the book. But basically, 
they petition the federal government to start growing it. At first, they're thinking like the Virgin Islands. But then they're like, ah, I don't know. There's like all these tourists. It's going to be crazy. But they have to find a climate and a location geography where they can do this. And they ultimately go, okay, what about Hawaii? And they do, Joe. They grew coca leaves secretly, a totally secret operation called the Alakea Project, also called Alakea. What does that mean? Exactly. Nobody's going to ask questions, you know, obfuscate the, the story in Kauai. Oh, wow. And it was done through the University of Hawaii. They had to sign all these non-disclosure agreements, and they wouldn't publish their papers uh, you know, that, on the study of all this. The reason the government agreed to it is that Koch said, we're going to create a cocaineless coca shrub, like basically breed a plant that doesn't have cocaine in it. And, of course, that never really transpires. But they do end up growing secretly behind barbed wire fences, coca leaves for Coca-Cola uh, in the 60s. But I'm an environmental historian, so I study the, the relationship between like businesses and the environment. And in this case, the environment matters because nature bit back. So in the 60s, this fungus that's native to Hawaii was like, whoa, this plant uh, that's not native and attacks it. And it wipes out the entire uh, coca crop of Coca-Cola. So that the supply they had for a very brief time in the 60s is wiped out. They go back to sourcing it from uh, Peru. Um, but so I was looking at all those ingredients, and it was when I was looking at caffeine that I ended up talking about Monsanto. So does Coca-Cola have a legitimate relationship with coca leaf growers in Peru right now? Right. Legitimate, I think, is the, the right kind of question to ask. Yeah. I mean, I went down to Peru because I think it's important if you're going to write about <laughs> people are going to write about a place that you go there. Yeah. So I went down there. Actually, my my father, uh, who doesn't speak any Spanish, was like my bodyguard down there with me. <laughs> it, was, it was probably a bad idea to bring my dad with me. But we kind of went on this journey to go see if we could figure it out. He's from, you know, uh, Georgia as well. So Sounds we're like, like a good way to find yourself missing. <laughs> exactly. Right? We probably should have uh, been more. But see, this is how it goes when you're a historian and you're in graduate school and you don't really know what you're doing. Right. You're just you're just taking risk and doing things that probably years later, you're like, maybe this is not the smartest yeah, idea. You wouldn't do if you had a family. Yeah, exactly, as I do now. So, and I, Although it wasn't <laughs> that safe for this book either. But anyway, we go down and we, we look into this story. And I think, to kind of answer your question, I mean, there is a trade. It's managed actually by uh, a state agency in Peru called ANACO. And exactly where the coca leaf comes from for Coca-Cola is a little bit unclear, you know, in the 21st century. But, but um, if you talk to coquilleros or people who represent the coquilleros, the farmers who produce the coca leaf, a lot of what they're frustrated about is that basically Coke has this exclusive right to bring in coca leaves into the United States. Now, if you and I were to try and do that, we'd be arrested at the border. Right. Right. Because the laws in this country now say you can't bring in coca leaves. Coca so leaves one are banned. company only. Basically. And by the way, yeah, this is what Pepsi, we were talking about Pepsi earlier. They were livid about this because they wanted access and other soft drinks wanted access to this to the supply. But the federal government was saying, no, 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 you know, and trying to kind of uh, protect that single buyer access, what we call monopsony what trade. What a crazy deal. It was so crazy. And it's one of the reasons why Coke, you know, 
they have a unique flavor, right? They have something that no one else can get. But here's the other thing, Joe, right? So, like, think about Coke. They're everywhere. Like, you could sell this stuff in any part of the world. And I think that's the trick for Coke. How do you get stuff at cheap? Well, if everyone had access to coca leaves, you know, the price of coca leaves might be pretty high because it's you can't grow coca leaves everywhere. Right. And so because they only have access to that leaf, they get a, a great deal on the price of coca leaves. And that's what coquilleros don't like, right? They would love to be able to sell coca tea in the United States. They would yeah. love to be able to sell, it's, you know, you name it, coca cookies, coca flour. Yeah. But because of international laws that ban it, by the way, that were in part brokered by Coca-Cola. That's part of the rub. <laughs> and they have it on their name, you know? Wow. Think about that rub, too. Here's a, here's a product that comes from your, you know, that deep history that goes back to the Inca. It's on the brand, and they're preventing that trade in part, you know, historically have been preventing that trade. That's what I think unnerves people. They don't see it as legitimate. They think a lot of people would see it as you know, some kind of theft. Do you use, like using your company to lobby and to throw money around to make that happen is it's like, I look at it two ways. In one way, it's a genius move. I mean, if you're a company exactly. and you have figured out how to make a monopoly on what's well, not a schedule one drug, right? Because it's got legitimate medical uses. Yeah. And you know, it, you can, as I said, you can bring it in for certain medicinal purposes and, and, right. and but beyond that, you know, the coca leaf itself cannot be imported. But to make one company have an exemption for that, that's only using it for flavor, but not allow other companies to do that, how does that stick? That seems crazy. That seems like Pepsi should challenge it. Yeah, well, they did. I mean, there's there are when? letters back in the back when this was being uh, kind of, uh, unfolded. I think they should do it right now. <laughs> they should. <laughs> but well, and I think that. I think about the farmers, you know, a lot of yeah. these stories, I think about what would be the benefit to a group of people to have the coca leaf be revalorized. I mean, we talk about a lot about, I know on your show, you talk a lot, a lot about marijuana and, and, and cannabis, you know, we're not talking about the coca leaf, which was villainized in similar ways. You know, yeah. we, we had this kind of view of this stuff is terrible and it, you know, you can't touch it. And s sadly, uh, you know, that could mean an incredible kind of bounty for people who grow this in Peru and other parts of South America. The problem if, if really is, it. sorry, the, the problem really is like people who step on it, right? And add things to it like fentanyl, which exactly. is a giant issue now. Or process out and create yeah. this kind of, you know, take out just the alkaloid that's the powerful cocaine in it instead of taking the leaf. And as right. I said, imagine going to Starbucks and having coca tea, you yeah. know, like no big deal. It'd be great. And I've, I've had it before. It was, exactly. It's interesting. Yeah. And I did it in Peru and it's, it's totally like it's not what people are thinking. Right. It's just it's like a caffeine sort of buzz, like maybe like a little bit different, but pretty similar in, exactly. in terms of the strength. It doesn't make you crazy or anything like that. Exactly, and you know it's used for high altitude um, exertion. It helps people mm -hmm. at high altitudes and things like that. So, I think one of the things in that book was trying to point that out that you know we, we're having this discussion about cannabis, but we should have it, and they are. There are people that are trying to say, look, we should be revalorizing is the word mm. the coca leaf like there's no reason why this thing is, needs to be treated this way yeah so we're and, stuck though we're stuck with these uh narratives we are that's and, that's the narrative that cocaine is evil and it ruins lives yeah, yeah. and i think you know again there's a difference between that kind of purified uh, powder that's going to have all this other stuff in it that can cause all these problems versus but the problem is that there is this sort of black market world and that's the only market to get it so it is cut with a bunch of other shit yeah. that's not supposed to be in there like amphetamines and fentanyl and 
Have you, are you aware of uh, Dr. Carl Hart? I don't know if I know. He's Carl. a professor at um, Columbia and uh, brilliant guy who uh, was originally, he was a scientist who was working with drugs and he was a very straight laced guy. But then upon working with them and really understanding their effects and understanding what the propaganda had done in terms of changing the way people viewed these drugs, he then started taking these drugs like hmm. regularly. Wow. And is open about it, mm -hmm. but is also brilliant. Right. So, and he's, you know, a genuine scholar. So he's a guy who will sit on a podcast and tell you, I take cocaine. I take heroin. It's, it's lovely. He goes, mm -hmm. regular heroin. I'm like, how do you do it? I sniff it. And he goes, it's, it's wonderful. I love it. It makes me feel good. It, it helps strengthens my relationships. And he's like, you and I should do cocaine together. I'm like, that is the craziest <laughs> fucking thing anybody's ever said to me. That's a professor from Columbia on a podcast. We should do cocaine together. Right. You know? that's, that's a rarity. Um, but he's like, if you get pure cocaine. He goes, pure cocaine is fantastic. He goes, it's great stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think of Michael Pollan's, but you had Michael Pollan yes. on, you know, and, and how to change your mind. I mean, we're seeing, in other words, what you're talking about, that there was a history here. That's why I think history matters, that this stuff hasn't always been perceived this way. And we got into this mess, and I think history can help us think about how I get out of it. In the case of Coca-Cola, again, I think it's just a matter of, you know, rethinking this coca leaf. I mean, here you've got a company that, again, has it on their name, and yet... You know, there's almost, and they won't acknowledge that too. It's part of it is just like we right. never had this. Like that's even worse. That's kind of a kick in the face. In and they way. still have the flavor that comes from the leaf. As far as when I last researched yeah. it, yeah. Well, so. yeah, we brought it up on the podcast before we went into it. We, we're we're stunned yeah. that they still not only that, but they use that and process it to make medical grade cocaine. And yeah. then, then, and interestingly, like at the very beginning, this was I went deep into this, so I got. They, they did sell it. They did sell cocaine. You know, like, I mean, I don't know how else to put it, but they had extra. But then they realized that the laws were emerging because, again, it wasn't it wasn't always that way. Right. People were, again, the president's, you know, consuming coca. Everyone's consuming yeah. it. So it took time. But, you know, when I got to so the coca was fun and interesting and wild. Um, but then I got to caffeine and that's what led to this. So, like, I, I, I always ask people, like, where does the caffeine come from that's in like soft drinks or do you drink caffeinated like beverages maybe not coke i don't know but, yes okay have you ever wondered where it comes from i you know what i haven't okay I, I didn't really either and i drank it all the time but i was like right i tried to google it as one does and i was like where's the caffeine come from and i couldn't figure it out and so I'm doing that ingredient by ingredient story for the cookbook, and I get to caffeine, and I'm kind of stuck. I'm like, I, I don't know where they get it. Um, and so if you had a guess, though, like what would be a guess? Would you have a good guess? Um, well, I would say, yeah, I'm not really exactly sure how they synthesize, synthesize things. So I would say synthetic caffeine. Yeah. But, I mean, what does that mean? Exactly. It's, it's got to have precursors. It's gotta, there's got to be, like, compounds that yeah. you mix together. Like, what is it? I didn't even go that far. I actually thought, like, maybe it's coffee, you know? And, and, and that wasn't right either. Um, so here's how it worked. Basically, and I found all this by going to Monsanto's records in St. Louis, which was part of the beginning of this book. I got access to Monsanto's records which was like, as a historian, this is incredible, right? I have an ability to tell a story that maybe, you know. Um, Did they give you access? I, they had to give permission to go into their archives, to their records. Yeah. Wow. I just still don't really understand why they do this, but. Did you get a burner phone? 
I, I didn't, but we'll talk about that. I did use an encrypted phone to talk to some sources inside Monsanto and yeah. stuff like that. And I look, I was just a historian, you know, coming out of grad school who had never had training in journalism or never really had training in the art of like protecting a source. And so I really had to, uh, and I give a plug to New America, this organization that um, gave me a fellowship and I got to hang out with writers from the Washington Post and from uh, different places that helped me think about oh, how do you do this the right way. Um, but they did, I had permission and I started to see this caffeine story. Like Monsanto, this is crazy. So, but for Coca-Cola, there would be no Monsanto. Really? Yes. Because when Monsanto, this chemical company from St. Louis that started in 1901, it was like barely getting by. It, it was, you know, the, the American chemical industry almost didn't exist. The Germans were really in control. They run, ran the organic chemistry. We were getting all of our chemicals from overseas. Monsanto, we think of it as like this monopoly. It controls everything. Back then, they were nothing. And so they needed a big contract. And so their initial buyer was Coca-Cola. And they sold Coca-Cola two things. They sold them saccharin, the artificial sweetener, um, which ultimately comes from coal tar. We can talk about that. And then caffeine that they – this is the crazy part. All right, this is how they did it. I would have never figured it out. So basically they took tea leaves that were broken and damaged around the world like on, at tea exchanges, like the garbage of the tea trade, and they realized no one was going to consume that. So it was just waste. And they basically swept that stuff up and processed out the caffeine from the garbage, from the waste tea, tea leaves. How many are there out there? <laughs> a lot. This is so much Coca-Cola. Is exactly. It? So that's that was what I knew was like, okay, well, wait a minute. This is 1901, but Coke's going to grow. And right. This is where your point comes in. It's going to become synthetic, right? But at first, they're like, okay, this waste tea tr- trade works. Then they need more. They need more caffeine, and um, decaf coffee takes off. If you've ever wondered, like, where does all that caffeine go, right? Like yeah. you're, if you drink decaf, I don't know, you know, if you do, but like all that caffeine from the decaf coffee market ended up going into soft drinks ah. in the 50s. But nobody was really drinking decaf coffee in the early part of the 20th century. Um, you know, but people wanted the caffeine kick. That was the big deal. But they still needed more, to your point. Like they needed more caffeine. We're talking about a company that sells 1.9 billion servings of its product every day. Now. Holy shit. 1.9 billion servings every day. That's crazy. It is nuts. So that's like what? One seventh of the total population? Yeah, exactly. Something around those? Yeah. Well, how many people do we have now? Seven points. More than yeah. seven. Yeah. Right? It's, isn't it closing in on eight? Yeah. So more than, that's a lot of fucking <laughs> servings. One yeah. point what was it? You said it earlier, 1.9 billion servings. That's it goes up every crazy. year. crazy. But that's, you know, I joke in my class, uh, I have this class history, uh, 3705, Coca-Cola Globalization, great students, love those guys. And they, uh, this class, basically, they say, I say, you can either come to this class and learn how to make a lot of money, you know, or you can learn about this, uh, the environmental impacts of something. That means stuff. like, that's basically one out of four people have a Coke every day. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Hey, well, right? and remember, isn't it? I said obviously servings, some people and it's have all the lot. other products they have. Right, but it's obviously some people go ham and they have like doesn't John yeah. Daly drink like 
18 Diet Cokes a day. Yeah, and like Warren Buffett drinks Cherry Coke every day. Right. Everybody, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so they're few, driving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Warren Buffett. The servings, the amount of 1.9. Remember, it's not just- 1.8. Uh, and that's not just Coca-Cola. It's like all their brands, and they have a lot of different brands. So servings of their products. But still, Coca-Cola right. is like, you know, the number one soft drink in the world. Still yeah. is. And Diet Coke was always number two. It always ticked off Pepsi because they were one and two. But Well, Pepsi seems like a fake- Cola when you've had Coke because it doesn't have that Coke, that whatever that flavonoid is that what it is? is it yeah, a flavonoid? The, the, the whatever the flavoring profile is. Yeah. yeah, I think you know it could be key to it. I mean, I will say one thing, one other thing about it. Can't get off the Coca thing because it's so like weird. But there is there is a document, and this is actually from a reporting of another journalist, Mark Pendergrass, but it's really good about New Coke. I don't know if you remember when New yeah, Coke came I out, do. but it was like a huge catastrophe because they were trying to totally reshape the flavor in 1984. And nobody liked it. Nobody liked it. You can go to the museum and they had like a voicemail machine, you know, machine that you could pick up that is like people being like, give me back my dang Coke. You know, when this. they had new Coke, did they still have old Coke available? No, that's that's the thing. Oh. They literally said, We're going cold slate, we're gonna completely wipe out the old Coke. So was it cocaine free? Is that the- And that's what was interesting. Mark Pendergrass found some evidence that when they made the switch to new Coke, they decided temporarily, well, why not? Like, we have this weird trade that we keep getting asked about. Like, let's just go ahead and get rid of this. So right. one of the things that they might have removed, according to Pendergrass, is this coca leaf flavor. Got but it. interestingly, we have a report from 1988 in the New York Times that they put it back in because it was so bad, right? And you can almost imagine the executives at Coke being like, whoa, wait a minute. Maybe we don't mess with this flavor. Maybe that's the one thing that separates them from Pepsi. Maybe I, that's what it is. I, I think it's a lot of things. I mean, one of the biggest things that made Coke so big and and where they basically just outpaced Coke, uh, Pepsi was World War II. They got c- government contracts to, to provide Coke to the troops. And this was coming from the top. I have the letter from Dwight D. Eisenhower saying, don't send me this, don't send me that, you're sending us Coca-Cola. Wow. And that meant that there were all these veterans and everyone, yeah, I mean, you're going to have a Pepsi at your house after you come home from D-Day, you know, the kid... The parents would like slap that out of their hands, like drink Coke, you know. And actually, Pepsi wrote to the government saying, "You can't do this." Like, Pepsi's getting fucked left and right. Totally, no cocaine. <laughs> no cocaine. They don't get said, set, save, served to the troops. Yeah, oh, you wow. could argue this is really just a book about how Pepsi got screwed. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. I mean, so there is evidence of that and that new Coke fiasco. But it, it ends up back. We know for sure. Is there enough caffeine from decaffeinated coffee when they extract it? To really put caffeine into all those sodas, because if I really and I, I would that imagine goes back, that oh, goes so. back to your point. I mean, because you said synthetic, right. yeah, and then, yeah, they needed more. Yeah, I, could, I would imagine mo- like the percentage of people that drink caffeinated coffee versus uncaffeinated or decaffeinated is probably super like, small. Yeah, it's probably like five to one or something. Yeah, I would guess. What exact, do you think? What's your guess? I have no idea. Should we find out? Yeah, let's find out. Google. Let's take a guess. <laughs> like, how many? Let's let's. Uh, Jamie, let's see what your guess. What is percentage first. of the coffee? Like, uh, how many people drink decaf to regular caffeine? Yeah, at, like in the morning or at night. Just like cup served, period. <sighs> it's like ten to one, probably. I think ten to one. I think like I mean, five it's a lot, to one. Yeah, like ten percent of. Maybe the, you're probably right. Though. Ten drinks. to one probably sounds better because people hate that decaf shit. They rarely, rarely drink whack. it. Just didn't drink it well, after and five. They, they don't definitely hate it in the early part of the yeah. 20th century because it was they had no real good system for getting out the caffeine and it made it taste terrible. Well, not only that, it's not real. Expensive. Even yeah. if you buy decaffeinated <laughs> coffee, it's got caffeine in it. Yeah, it still's got 
caffeine yeah. in. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But you, people need to know that because they they'll give it to their kids before they go to bed. Have some decaf <laughs> coffee in the fucking kids. <laughs> to their kids, really? Little kids. Yeah, That's people awesome. are crazy. People are terrible parents. <laughs> and decaffeinated, you would imagine, actually is decaffeinated, but it's not. It's like the difference in milligrams is like. I think like a cup of decaf has like 15 milligrams or something like that yeah. as opposed to like, you know, I, I don't know what it is, but I do know that there's still, yeah, there's caffeine in there for sure. Let's see. Servings of yeah. regular coffee. To compared American to- coffee drinkers had roughly 0.23 cups of decaf coffee per day, but it's not in comparison to caffeinated. Uh-huh. Mm. Hmm. There's no uh, – someone no, must have I done know, a I'm comparison. To, that's why I got right? asked right as I found that and – not, why don't they compare them together? Sorry, well, give me the, a second. Okay. Yeah, the sourcing at that time was Maxwell House. So it was like not even really good coffee. Oh, like okay. 50s, instant. like instant yeah. junk. And so, and that was really exploding. But still, you're right, it's pretty small. So they needed more. And in the 40s, in part because of the war, they couldn't get supplies of various things. Once again, we see Coca Cola turning to Monsanto and saying, hey, Monsanto, we, you know, you've supplied us with caffeine, saccharin, all these things. Can you make synthetic caffeine? And Monsanto does. They figure out a way to make synthetic caffeine from coal tar. So, what, what is coal tar? So it's basically the byproduct of processing coal into coke, which is co- coal without its impurities, often used you know, in the steel industry. And it's literally a black tarry substance that's the byproduct of that process, kind of the waste of processing coal into coke. And in that tar is all these different chemicals uh, that you can make because it's all these different carbon compounds that you could tease out and then do things to to make all sorts of things. And actually, one of the points of this book is that almost all this stuff around us like ultimately comes from fossil fuels, whether it be coal tar yeah. byproducts or you know p- petroleum. But um, it's pretty nuts when you see how many different things come from fossil fuels. Yeah, like our headphones, yeah, headphones this headphones, stuff. plastic that we covers these wires. couldn't function. And that's why I think when we transition, if we do, to a fossil fuel-free economy, mm-hmm. you know, and try and, and, and reduce greenhouse gases and things like that, people are talking about cars and power plants. After writing this book, I'm like, no, I'm thinking about everything else. I was just literally just looking at you know, all the equipment in here and things like so much plastic. So much stuff. And all of that goes back to this period where they're like experimenting with coal tar, experimenting with petroleum, being like, wow, we can make this. We can make this. And it was cheap because oil was booming at that time. Right. You know, you could just do it. So they can make caffeine out of oil. Base yeah, and ultimately it's natural gas largely now. But at that time it was coal tar originally for Coca-Cola. And this is this talk about sh- kind of some shady stuff. You know, Coke has had these long contracts with Monsanto at this point. This is the 40s. And they're like, hey, could you make synthetic for us? But if you look internally at Coke, they're like, well, I don't even know if we're going to buy it, but we just want more caffeine in the market because more caffeine means, you know, other buyers who are getting caffeine may use that caffeine, which keeps the price of caffeine down. Um, because Coke's real model was like not owning stuff, like making other people do stuff. Like they were they were a business that basically just did was a middleman in the economy. They didn't uh, they didn't actually grow the ingredients in their product, and they didn't distribute it. It was independent bottlers who did it. They were kind of like this middleman in the economy. And so for for Monsanto, they were like, hey, go experiment with this, see how it goes. And Monsanto does it. They figure out how to synthesize caffeine from coal tar. And they have to use a base molecule found in that coal tar called urea. And this is true, okay? They make it, 
And they're like, hey, Coke, look, we've got this synthetic for you. Comes from urea, found in coal tar. And Coke's like, nah, consumers aren't going to drink this. Urea sounds like urine. Uric you, acid. you said it. Okay, this is what's crazy. Yeah. This is in the archive. This is exactly, oh, really? that's that's exactly what the chemist, there's this great oral history at, the, um, at one of these archives I went to from one of the chemists who knew what was going on inside the company who said, internally, when we were talking to them, they said, that sounds too much like urine. <laughs> They're going to think it's pee. <laughs> and they legitimately initially say, we're not going to do it. You know, and they stick with natural source caffeine, again, coming from the coffee bean and things. Now, they ultimately decide to pivot because, to your point, they're growing at such a pace they need to have synthetic. And, and I uh, can't prove this, but it seems logical that their thinking is, wait a minute, consumers are never going to ask where their caffeine comes from. Look at everyone I've ever talked to. No one knows right. where the caffeine comes from, right? And so they do switch to synthetics. And if you go to their website, it's great. It says, we source our caffeine from tea leaves. So that waste tea leaf story is still part of it. The uh, coffee beans, uh, decaf coffee, and then appropriate sources. Appropriate. <laughs> Which I <Pee>. love. <laughs> well, you know, and a lot of things are made from this. But, you know, right. ultimately then natural gas became the feedstock and things. And it's a lot of it's produced in China. But wow. anyway, it's crazy. And so, but it's, that was when I was like, oh, my gosh. Monsanto. So that got Monsanto off the ground because then they had a giant project. They had a huge project, you know, with the saccharin and caffeine for Coca-Cola, these big contracts that, that kept them afloat. You can go to my, this is like, you know, readily available information on their website. They'll say, but for Coca-Cola, we wouldn't exist. So sometimes when I think about the environmental footprint of Coca-Cola, I'm like, it's bigger than just the firm. You know, it's. Right. It goes into it's these the other stories. Literal seed money. It's the literal Monsanto. seed money. Yeah. yeah. Uh, shout out to my friend Jesse Pappas, who came up with that title and was like, it was it was brilliant because it it did reflect what I wanted to tell, which is that there is going to be the seed company, but it's not a seed company when it starts. It's only making chemicals, and at the very beginning, it's only making chemicals for Coca Cola. There was a while where uh, mainstream news sources were reporting on the crisis with Indian farmers. Yeah, farmers in India that um, they they uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I'll probably butcher this, but essentially. The way Monsanto engineered its seeds is like you grow a plant, but you don't have the use of the seeds from that plant. Like, so say, like, I'm going to fuck this up, I'm sure. But if you mm -hmm. grow a tomato or a pumpkin, let's say you grow a pumpkin, then you get all the seeds from the pumpkin. Those seeds aren't viable. Like, they've engineered the, the plant to make sure that the seeds aren't viable, right? Right. That's a popular m actual myth about what they've done. They've done a lot of things. They that, haven't done that. They haven't done that. So they... This came from a, a, a technology called what they called Terminator yes. technology from 1990, you know, the 1990s film. And it was owned by Delta and Pine and Land Company that they ended up acquiring in the uh. early 2000s. And at that time, Delta had this technology, but they didn't deploy it. And one of the things that raised all this fear about this company getting bigger and bigger was, oh, my gosh, they're going to get this technology and they're going to use it. There's... No evidence that we have that they have actually deployed that. The way that they prevent farmers now from resaving their seeds and planting them is through a, a extremely intense contract called a technology use agreement or TUA that farmers have to sign, like a soybean farmer has to sign it and say, 
I will not replant seeds that come from this harvest. Well, you don't own the seeds, right? Is you, that the deal? Like you, when you buy the seeds to use them, you're essentially like leasing them for that exactly. season. Exactly, it's like a licensing fee in mm. a sense. And actually, this was this was revolutionary. Like farmers had never seen something like this in the '90s. Like right. they were like, "Wait a minute!" So you're going to license this technology to us, and um, we can't save the seeds and replant them. And, you know, that that's what led to all this havoc and chaos in farm country where farmers were saying, this goes against like centuries old practices where we're, we're always saving seeds and experimenting with them yeah. and challenging them. So that was a huge change to the, to the food system. But way later in Monsanto's story, I mean, they weren't even, they weren't making, they weren't even in the ag I, want, I definitely want to get back to the yeah. beginning of it, but is is that still going on in India? Because you don't hear about that story anymore. Yeah, where I think, these farmers get massively in debt, and there was a rash of suicides. Right, a right? rash of suicides, and I think that you know it's 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 hard to parse out that story of what's causing these these suicides. Um, and there's some you know people who say the suicide rates. You know when they look at it, well, did it increase when these seeds came in, or is it? It was because of those seeds. I think the debt issue is the bigger issue, right? Yeah. That you have this kind of industrial scale agriculture and the pressures on these rural farmers that leads to these problems. Um, but there's there's a lot of other ways in which I think Monsanto kind of creates this, this system that prevents farmers from doing something they'd always done, which is saving seeds. And the debt story is also true in the United States. I mean, these seed costs go through the roof. The more genetically engineered traits that are added to them and stacked in, we see this dramatic increase in in those prices. And the only way to really keep up is to keep trying to grow as big as you possibly can and using as much petrochemical pesticides and fertilizers as you can to, to increase your productivity. And it's kind of a rat race where farmers don't necessarily feel like they're, you know, incredibly profitable, but they feel like they're just trying to keep up. Does that same technology contract apply today with, say, like corn or soybean farmers in America? It does, especially soy. Corn is a unique uh, situation because you were talking about this terminator gene that could be added. And again, we don't really have evidence that they did that. But with corn, um, going back to the 20s and 30s, we developed what was known as hybrid corn. And the, the weird thing about hybrid corn is that when you plant, when you take the seeds that are produced from that harvest, they will not be as prolific as the seeds you originally bought. Mm. So with corn, it's weird. Even going back to the 20s, there was a system in place that was just part of the g- kind of genetic peculiarity of corn that meant that farmers had to buy corn over and over again. But what was different was soybeans, cotton, and a lot of other products. This was not the case. Can I ask you this? If, yeah. If that is the case, if the corn, like when you try to replant the corn, it's not as prolific, where are they getting the original corn that you can plant? From these crosses of the of these two different varieties, these kind of parent strains. And as long as you get that, that original strain, that original parent strain coming from those crosses, then that, that corn grows well. But when you... If you if you try and take the seeds from from those siblings of those parents, they don't produce the same uh, so, amount. So you have companies like Pioneer that made a lot of money off this because they figured out how to have these parent lines and to do these crosses, and then be able to sell those seeds from those original parent lines. That would be really prolific. But if the farmers saved those seeds and tried to grow another uh, generation, they just wouldn't produce the that same amount. That is wild. Yeah, so it's crazy. Uh, when they're doing it now. 
so they have to have these two different strains and cross them now to make seeds to sell to farmers. Yeah, and, and you're seeing experiment experimentation with uh, with the top seed companies trying to figure out okay which cross which parent crosses are going to produce the best the best yield. But then if you try and save that seed and replant it, you're not you're you're not going to have the same vigor is what it's called. You don't have the same productivity. So weirdly with corn, there was kind of a corporatization of the seed business baked into the, the peculiarities of crossing corn. Whereas with soybeans and cotton and other crops, this you had to have an agreement that Monsanto created to mm. make farmers come back and buy those seeds every year. We grow so much corn though. Yeah. I, and I, I think about it on my I'm so puzzled right now because I'm trying to figure out how would you have enough of these two different strains to cross them to make enough seeds to grow all this corn. Well, you can have different parent crosses. You can have different kinds of parents that you cross to make these to make this 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 hybrid seed. Um, and you and you have a lot of different seed companies that are playing with different parents. What I'm saying is, once you do that, and then if farmers oh, I, I get it. it, yeah, it won't it, work it, again it, it with the, the offspring of those. But what I'm saying is. Yeah. How are they breeding so many, how many crosses they're doing to get enough seeds? Like if you drive through Kansas, or I have a buddy who lives in Iowa, yeah. and, and you drive to through these cornfields, like you're like, holy shit. Like if you're a person from the city and you don't know what, right? <laughs> it's incredible. Have yeah. you, did you drive through oh, some yeah. of those areas well, to research I mean, it? being in Ohio, uh, shout right. out to Jamie, who's also from Shout Ohio. out to Columbus. Yeah, shout out to Strong Columbus. Columbus yeah, we got a lot of Ohio <laughs> representation in here. You know, you just see tremendous amounts of corn and tremendous amounts of soybeans everywhere. And yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, you, you have a prolific generation of seeds from a harvest. Um, and so, you know, it, it is a bit baffling, I have to say, about just the scale of it. How does it how does it all work? But, you know, and you think about it, the majority of our cropland, our arable cropland, is, is cultivating soybeans, corn, hay, and all, almost all of that is going into animal fodder, which is its own story. Right. Um, but yeah, it's most it, of it, right? Most of it. I mean, the vast majority of it is going into over animal 90% feed and animal feed. And then that animal feed is it mostly for cows? Uh, cows, Chickens. all sorts of livestock. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pigs, pigs, and you know, often in these CAFOs, which is just such a broken system. These you know consolidated feeding lots mm -hmm. where you're producing so much waste and and manure and things like that that it becomes quite toxic. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of you know. I think for me, the the story about food with Monsanto that was interesting was I wanted to kind of know, did these genetically engineers, engineered crops actually produce much higher yields? You know, did we see this like massive growth in the productivity of genetically engineered crops? Um, and maybe I should back up just to say like when that happened. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the first large-scale introduction of genetically engineered crops, commodity crops like soybeans, like corn, like all these things, um, they were introduced in 1996. So one of the interesting things about sitting here today is that we're kind of at the 25-year mark of genetically engineered crops being introduced in the United States and ultimately around the world. Um, Brazil, Argentina, some 28, some state countries around the world that now have genetically engineered crops. And so I, I looked at it as a historian and said, okay, well, what can we say about that? You know, did these, what did these crops actually do? And when they were introduced, you know, the idea was 
And, and just to be clear, this was a new technology. It's often said, well, we've been, always been changing you know, crops and things like that. What was different in this era, 80s and 90s, was you know, we were taking genes from a bacterium, for example, inserting it into a plant, taking things from one species, putting it in another, and changing the makeup of that um, crop. And in 96, when we see this happening, two, they're trying to do two things. They're trying to, the main genetically engineered crops were Roundup Ready crops that were designed to tolerate heavy dosages of herbicide called Roundup that interestingly, of course, Monsanto owned, right? And they had been making since the 1970s. But at this point, they're thinking, this could be amazing. If we can genetically engineer crops to be resistant to Roundup, wow, think about the sales, right? You can spray Roundup on your fields, and this is the key, during the growing season, when your crops are growing, kill any weeds that are in those fields, and wow, you know, the, the plants will survive, but the crops... And this uh, use of glyphosate, did they know at the time how toxic it was? It was the opposite, Joe. You know, when, when they introduced this in the 1970s, so it was actually discovered in 19, around 1970 by a chemist inside the firm called John Franz. And the, this is what's so wild when you go back is they saw it as the environmentally friendly herbicide. You know what they're trying to replace at that point? DDT? Agent Orange. Agent Orange. Yeah. Agent oh my Orange. God. So let's, this, here's the story. So, so let's go back just a little bit more to get to that. So, and I talk about the whole story of Agent Orange in here in this book. They f- first start making, and by they I mean Monsanto, 245T. It's a chlorinated hydrocarbon that's an active ingredient in Agent Orange in 1949 in a little town called Nitro, West Virginia, which I traveled to, because nobody went to go talk to the workers. Nobody went to the actual place where the people who made the herbicides. You know, to me, I, you know, my dad was in Vietnam, and, and, and those stories are important, and I want to talk about that as well. But it also mattered to me, like, we need to go to the root of the story, the people who actually made these chemicals. What happened there at that plant, you know? So Monsanto was making it in 49. This chemical goes back to the 40s, wartime, you know, World War II. In some ways, there were some experiments with it. Monsanto's doing it in 49. Um, 245T, the active ingredient in Agent Orange, it's actually two chemicals in Agent Orange, 24D, 245T. Um, and about 50% of each of these compounds. And the problem was with 245T. That chemical had a contaminant known as dioxin, which Dow Chemical writing to Monsanto in 1965 said, this is the most toxic compound we've ever seen. Holy shit. 65, and you got this Vietnam War 66, 67, 68, ramping up, you know, and, and where the spraying is going to be going on overseas. And that could be jarring in and of itself, but in the book you'll see, I go back to 49, at the plant where they're producing 245T. And these workers are all sorts of tore up. Like they have chloracne, which um, you can probably find on, on Google, but you know what it looks like. But it's basically like where your skin is peeling off. It's just these massive pustules. It's acne-like lesions that are showing that you have systemic exposure to dioxin. Ugh. 
The worker has had this. There's a guy in there, James you Ray. You met these guys. Well, a lot of them were dead, um, and, or a lot of them weren't around by the time I did it, but I got, I got their files. As I say in the book, you know, they're, they're telling stories. They may not be here, but their records yeah. found in those corporate records still tell a story. And James Ray Boggess, I, I just will never forget this story. He talked about it in a deposition because he, he took Monsanto to trial. Um, and they, they took the, these workers years later in the 80s took Monsanto to trial. Um, they lose that trial. And actually Monsanto puts, uh, I think, liens out on their homes to make them pay the court costs back, the workers themselves. But anyway, this is 49 in the 50s, right? So they've got chloracne on their faces. This this is all being documented by the doctors and people in the, in the company. But and, you know, he has to peel off his face. He literally said five times they, they used a solvent to try and peel off layers of his skin to, because of the, of the chloracne exposure. They, they, were, they were complaining of nervousness and all these systemic health problems. I mean, of course, we now know dioxin is super toxic. And they even said it in 65, right? I need to see what this looks like. So, you got something? Yeah, chloracne. And this is... Uh, oh, Jesus. It's like that guy who got poisoned exactly, from the Ukraine. Exactly. Um, and... So you tell me, if you're seeing workers coming down with this, might you say, wait a minute, we might have a problem with our chemical. Right? Well, you guys need to wash your face. You know, well, in this case, you know, that's kind of what they did. They um, said stuff. Right, they said go. stuff like, look. Oh, my God. Um, you know, you don't worry. This is just acne. It'll go away. What is he showing in the upper corner? The up. What is that? Is, he, is that his stomach? What is that? Is that his sack? That's yeah. his balls? I think that is correct. <laughs> On Google? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So, but yeah, I think, you know, it, this. So these ch that child down there, that's an environmental poisoning. Oh, God. Yeah. This. Oh, my God. This is horrific. And so chloracne is really, is really nasty stuff. And again, this is what they're seeing internally, you know, inside the firm with their workers. 40, and I think I just wanted to stress this, you know, 40, 51, 52, this is years before Agent Orange is going to be sprayed in Vietnam and before so veterans know. are going to be exposed to this. They already know. Yeah. I mean, you know, you if you want to take a generous interpretation of this, you know, they're saying, well, I don't know, it's acne, but maybe it's not going to have these systemic effects, you know. But in my opinion, you're seeing it so visibly you you stop production. You you prevent this from going out into the world. What do they do? Well, okay. in those years, they continued to um, to produce it, and it was used in the United States. This is the thing that I think gets overlooked. We use two four five T here on gardens, and you know all sorts of places. You can look this up and uh, still relatively Googleable. No, back then in the fifties, you know, okay. right as that post war lawn culture and. Automobile age is taking off. So how many people are getting this chloracne? At the plant, we're talking about dozens of workers. They is it down most with people? Do some people somehow or another avoid it? Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot there. They had different buildings, and it seemed oh. to depend on if you were working closely with those those chemicals or not, because they're producing other chemicals there, rubber chemicals and other so things. Is it dermal absorption, or is it inhaling? It's. I think it does come through dermal penetration. And these guys, you know— uh, Interestingly, I should say this about one of the doctors who was overseeing the, the company at the time. He, he often said that people that were complaining of health problems were what he called kind of the disgruntled 10th. 
you know, this is the people who are just unhappy with working here and things like that. And that's kind of how he saw workers. If they're coming in to complain about their health problems, it's probably because they have a bigger problem with management or something Jesus. like that, which is part of the problem, right? I think they might, they probably overlook things because that's how they saw people complaining about health issues. But this is hard to overlook, you know? Yeah. You're seeing workers that are systemically coming down with problems. You're hiring people to test them and look into this. And instead of saying, wait, 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 before we've got this all figured out, you know, maybe we shouldn't keep pushing this stuff out. Yeah. But they do. Of course, because they're making money. They're making a lot of money at this point. And then, of course, with Agent Orange, it becomes a big deal. They're the largest producer by volume of Agent Orange during the, during, uh, the Vietnam War. <sighs> Dow, of course, is producing it. but And actually, Monsanto's, because of their process, it was more laden with dioxin than the other compounds. What a crazy company, if you really stop and think about it. They start off as just a chemical company, probably fairly innocuous, if not beneficial to yeah. their customers. And then they make cocaine, caffeine. Not the cocaine. They well, make caffeine and saccharin, yeah. Because well, they don't yeah. do the decoconized coca leaf stuff for Coca-Cola. Okay, that was Maywood. Yeah, right. So it. they make caffeine for Coca-Cola. They start making money. And then they start making Agent Orange. And then they start making Roundup. And then they start, I mean, and now they're sort of synonymous with evil corporations. Yeah. If, if you think, like, if you ask someone what's an evil corporation, like Monsanto would be one. Like, people would use that. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good evil. Like, if you're like, name an evil corporation. <laughs> like, if you're on, what is it, Jeopardy? Sure. <laughs> what's the show? Would you do the, the, the things? We oh, uh, Family Feud. Family Feud. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Survey yeah. says. Survey says. Monsatan. Yeah. Yes. I mean, Mont that's, but yeah. that's how it's about, you know, I actually yeah. got that, I got that actual bumper sticker from my brother who lives in Alaska. He sent that to me and I started writing this. He's like, look at this, it says Monsatan, you know. And I have to be honest with you, when I started this, I was very aware of that. I think, uh, you know, having watched your show and your conversations, like, you appreciate this. I really wanted to start from scratch. I wanted to say, okay, well, like, what happened? And right. where was it as bad as it? you know, as people say. Um, and there were definitely moments, like you're saying, where I was like, ah, you know, these guys are just trying to make money. They're trying, this scrappy guy, John Queenie, who started the company, he's in his 40s. He's got two kids. Get this, all right. When he starts Monsanto in 1901, he's got two kids. He's, his wife, by the way, is Olga Monsanto. So if you're wondering... Olga's either hot or a monster, <laughs> well, right? It's either you get an Olga... She's a super hot. Oh, yeah, she's there hot. she is. Yeah, there's Olga Monsanto. Especially for back then. Yeah. Like, what year is this? This is around 1901 or so. And there's yeah. Edgar, his That's son. That's a hot Olga. Next to him, yeah. And then there's, he got a good one, right? Yeah. And then there's- um, Look at his mustache. Olguida. Look at that. Look at that thing. Poof. He doesn't look happy. Wow. He's and that, living that, in 1901. He's like, <laughs> fuck. Yeah, average life expectancy. He's 40 years old. Average life expectancy, like 44, 45. Really? At that time. I mean, but if you make it past childbirth, of course, you, you have a better, much better chance of, of surviving. But, but anyway, he, yeah, he does name his company after his wife. What's interesting is you wonder whether that was like, whether she'd be happy about that, right? It becomes this hated name in so many ways years later. But he's scrapping by. He actually had tried to start a chemical industry in the late 19th century. It had burned down. And he didn't have any money. He's got these kids. He's got this family. So, like, to your point, I'm kind of, when I'm reading this, I'm trying to understand how is this company starting? What's the human story here? How do we get into this mess? You know? Money. But, and then, you know, we do, when you get, as you said, to the 50s and 60s, these agricultural chemicals become a huge part of their business. But kind of back to Roundup, 70, okay? 
two four five T now now the lid's off. You know, the the government's starting to find out about it. People are raising alarms. Scientists are talking about how toxic this stuff is. And, you know, they're looking for an alternative, something that's not as toxic as this stuff. And that's when John Franz finds uh, glyphosate. Interestingly, mm. you know all, like the detergent all? Yes. That was a Monsanto product. Of course it was. <laughs> but it had, it had a phosphate-based ingredient in it that helped it clean clothes. But in the 60s, phosphate-based detergents were ending up in waterways and contributing to like fish algae death. blooms and fish death. Yeah. And so they had to get rid of that phosphate detergent and they had all this phosphate. And they're like, what do we do with all this phosphate? <sighs> Boom, all detergent, you know, and all that phosphate ends up becoming the, the building blocks of Roundup. Roundup is ultimately coming from elemental phosphorus. Wow. It's crazy. And but it was all designed to be healthy. I know a guy who lived in a community that was uh connected to a golf course and he grew up drinking water from a well. And him and a, a, a large number of people in the community got cancer. Mm. And they firmly believed that it was because of whatever pesticides that yeah. they were using or herbicides that they were using on the golf course that it leaked into the wells. Can I show you what Roundup looks like nowadays? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Jamie, there's a there's a, a map in there that's like a map of the country, and it's kind of brown, and it shows you kind of Roundup. Um, it's probably most of the country, glyph right? it's, It says glyphosate because that's the active ingredient. But I just want to show you the change that's happened over the last several years with glyphosate. So, like, oh. that's glyphosate. This comes from the USGS Pesticide National Synthesis Program. Um, this is what happened with roundup ready technology like we were this is 92 so remember i said roundup is created in the 70s but it's not really used that much you know throughout the growing season it's interesting how it's used so much in california yeah it's, it's like the primary rally. application of it that look at that the that's, weird farmland on the way up to san francisco if you're driving from la and you see you know like fuck joe biden signs that's where they are <laughs> exactly <laughs> yep that's also you know the land of like like ninety percent of our almonds, mm -hmm. like nine, yeah. you know, yeah. all of the salad, everything comes from there. Yeah, and so much pesticide use in that valley. Wow! But look at the Midwest. I mean, it goes from like, you know, almost none, almost or none. very little to swarms to swarms. By and two thousand seventeen, and that's because you've made crops that are now resistant to glyphosate. So you can uh. spray it all, you know, as much as you need to kill your weeds. But, um, and Jamie, there's a, you had that weed resistance graph going up. But a, a fifth grader can tell you, well, wow. when you spray that much Roundup on something or glyphosate on something, you're going to start seeing resistance. Adaptation. Exactly. Like yeah. it's nature fighting back. Like what's happening with um, antibiotics where you're seeing these like MRSA, like these medication-resistant staph infections that are insanely difficult to treat. Just like it. Yeah. Just like it. You know, in fact, some of the weed scientists I talked to, I'll be honest, the when I first was going to a talk at Ohio State that they said the weed scientists are talking, I thought, oh. I thought it was weed, marijuana. <laughs> I showed up, I was like, Oh, this is cool too, you know? <laughs> yeah, I want to find out how to make the shit stronger. <laughs> <laughs> so, but these weed scientists at Ohio State who are great and helped out with the book, um, fantastic folks, you know, some of those, you know, they're like glyphosate was like penicillin, man. It was, it was so powerful. It was so effective at killing weeds. that like, And we burned through it mm. because these weeds became resistant to it. 
Mm. And so, and that's where we're at now, kind of going back to your point about um, chemicals and exposures. Like Roundup was introduced because it was seen as an environmentally more friendly herbicide at the time in the 70s. Then Agent Orange. <laughs> then, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're comparing yeah. it against some pretty bad... Uh... It's like, would you like to get punched or I'll shoot you? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it had to do with, you know, the way it, it worked and, and the mechanisms there. But what's happening now because of that resistance, and Jamie, I hate to bring it up again because it's actually kind of cool. You get to see this. This is the first time I've, we put it together. But when that weed resistance takes off, I think it's the next graph after that, What what happens is Check this out. Okay, this is this is what's happening. I put this together with a friend of mine who's a data scientist. Try to uh, remember that a lot of people are just listening. They're Probably just listening. a huge percentage. It's fair enough. So I'll try and describe it. Okay. So what we're looking at is pounds of herbicide per acre of soybeans. So this is just looking at soybeans as a case study. And we're looking at the amount of herbicides that's being used on farms per acre in the U.S. in specific states just because they had data for this, to, for us to compare. And what we're seeing is this like explosion in Roundup, glyphosate, that big dark line going up like that. And notice, look, we, we started seeing the decline in all these other herbicides that are really toxic stuff, like chlorinated compounds and things like that. They're going down and down and down, but check out weed resistance. 2004, 2005, mm. 2006, boom, all those herbicides that were really toxic, including, by the way, the other half of Agent Orange, 2,4-D, is now being used to try and beat back Roundup-resistant weeds. Wow. And so, what last- a fucking mess. It's crazy. Yeah, so Look, like- if, if the folks that are looking at this graph, you're, you're essentially seeing like two mountains superimposed, but one's upside down. So- it starts out that everything's working great, and then it turns terrible, and then you have these uh, her herbicide-resistant. Uh, it's like the graph. Uh, is it available online? So people. Uh, I don't know if we have it available. Online. I'll try. I'll see if I can figure out a way to do that and, and, and do that. But but it, to see it, it is, is it's like the clearest example ever that this that is, is a broken, policy. right? Yeah. And that's kind of what I was saying about looking back as a historian at 25 years of data and saying, wait a minute, like we were told that genetically engineered crops would reduce our dependence on all these toxic herbicides, but because of resistance, we're seeing all these toxic herbicides coming back. So if you're a consumer. And honestly, it's not just so much about us and like caring about our food, but if you care at all about the p people that produce your food, you know, and their exposure to, to compounds. I mean, we're, we're talking about some of these chemicals that are coming back, produced in the 40s, you know, invented in the 40s, mm -hmm. 50s. That's not good. No. And we're also, because we're spraying these things, people have more exposure to glyphosate. So you're seeing whatever health problems that glyphosate causes i'm sure you're seeing that exasperate yeah that's that's expanding right yeah you know on on glyphosate so here's where we're at with glyphosate and what what's out there from all the the different studies so what happened in 2015 was the world health organization came out and said that glyphosate is a probable human carcinogen what year was that this 2015 2015 um but yeah we still use it yeah. Well, interesting. Well, it's only been six years. Exactly. Well, <laughs> it, yeah, think about it. And interestingly, Bayer, the company that now owns Monsanto, they bought Monsanto in 2018. They, um, you know, they're, they're going to pull Roundup from Home Depot and Lowe's volu voluntarily. 
um, in the next two years. So they're not even going to sell this stuff for like regular consumers like you and I who might well use it on your lawn or whatever. Whatever, right? Um, but somehow we're going to keep using it on farms, right? It's kind of like this logic doesn't hold up, right? Right. Um, now the EPA, of course, after that two thousand fifteen um, decision by the WHO, they produced a study and said uh, we disagree. We don't think it's carcinogenic. But then within the own that agency, there are scientists that disagree on that um, and debate that. There have been three major cases out of California, all of which have gone in favor of the plaintiffs who have charged that Roundup exposure has been linked to their non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I have to say, looking at it very closely, it's a mess. Like I can't, you know, I'm trying to figure out, well, what does it do? Does it cause it? Does it not? All I'll say is, given the uncertainty, looking at that graph, it's like, come on, you know, yeah. like, should we be doing this? I yeah. don't know. I, I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what are the alternatives? If you want to produce the kind of crops that we produce in this country, if you think about how many animals that we have to feed and how, how many acres of soy and corn they're growing, what would be the options in terms, like, if they need some sort of an herbicide and they don't use Roundup, they're not going to go out there and pick with the weeds. Exactly. Right? So what do they do? Well, that's part of it, right? I think we have to fundamentally rethink the way that we're doing agriculture and definitely think about how much of our agricultural land is going towards these CAFOs and fodder. Yeah. Well, even just agriculture in general, like people need to understand that monocrops, monocrop agriculture, like having these massive fields filled with corn is completely unnatural. Totally that's, unnatural. It doesn't exist in nature. And that's why you have these pests yes. that you constantly have to beat back because yeah. they love stuff like this. Yeah, and then they realize like, well, all we have to do is adapt to corn, you know, these corn corn consumption and corn wherever it's growing and there's uh, all these minerals they're putting in the grounds to make the corn grow and this is our spot. Let's go there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's it's you've, you've made a feast. You've made yeah. this bounty and it's like, "Come, Eat as much as you want. And then you uh, poison everybody but the corn, and you just basically have this mutant corn that can take a beating. <laughs> can. Well, now these, I mean, most of these, most of these plants are now genetic, they're called stacked. Yeah. They're stacked. So how do they do that? Explain what that means and how they did that. Yeah, basically they, they now have crops that are resistant not to one trait, but it's stacked. They're uh, one herbicide. They are resistant to, in one case, the one one that's seeking approval right now is like five herbicides. So you're saying like, you know, plants that can beat back are like super yeah. tough, pretty damn tough, you know, plants with five different herbicides they What's can a tolerate. Mutant, though it's like that's a mutant plant, right? You know, I mean, I think in this case, <laughs> you could argue that that's a pretty strange thing and not yeah. natural in no. so many ways, right? One of the things, and this is the craziest, the plants that are now coming out are called dicamba tolerant. Most people are talking about Roundup. Dicamba is freaking crazy. Oh, okay. no. It's worse? <laughs> it's hard to say worse, you know, because when you look at these stories, you're like, what's worse? You know, the Agent Orange story or, or this. This is what's going on right now with dicamba. Because, you know, there's Roundup-resistant weeds. Farmers are now buying these seeds that are resistant to Roundup and dicamba, this other chemical. The problem with dicamba is when you spray dicamba over some plants, it like vaporizes in hot temperatures. 
So this herbicide jumps up and actually spreads onto other plants, which is totally crazy. So like if you're spraying in a really hot temperature, dicamba will jump and hit other farmers nearby. What? So it, it actually evaporates? It evaporates. It vaporizes, which is crazy. So you're spraying it. It vaporizes under what temperature? Uh, you know, summer temperatures in Arkansas, 90s, upper <sighs> 80s. And then it just flies through the air. And guess what? You're a farmer over here who didn't buy Monsanto seeds uh, that have dicamba tolerance. So you get pounded. And so I went to the court case and sat in the gallery and watched. And I was like, I wanted to hear the corporate documents because they got challenged by farmers who were hit by dicamba saying, what the hell? You know, we're just farming over here and we're getting hit by this vapor. Yeah. And the documents were like, crazy. It showed that Monsanto knew that drift was going to happen, that that was going to happen. During production, like during the development of this? Not so much during development, but once it was sprayed on farms, like once farmers started spraying it, it was going to jump. And oh my gosh, it's going to start hitting this farm over here. Uh Uh-oh. Tough shit? Yeah, basically. But they weren't thinking tough shit. They were like, guess what? They're going to need us now Mm -hmm. because then they'll need our strains that can resist this stuff. Confidential internal document released in that court case said... They'll buy this for, quote, protection from their neighbor. Oh, my God. Forcing people to use these monster crops. Now, there was also a story where farmers were sued because it showed that they had Monsanto crops growing on their field, even though they had never purchased or had a contract with Monsanto because of just this natural thing that happens with whether it's with the wind carrying these seeds or animals or what have you, right? Yeah. So again, one of these ones that's, that I really went in close on because yeah. I wanted to get it right. And it's the, the, the drift, the idea that there's been a lot of cases where the drift of pollen has led to that. I haven't seen cases of that. I have seen lots of cases of what you're talking about where a farmer, for whatever reason, comes into possession of Roundup Ready traits and plants it on his crop without signing an agreement with Monsanto and gets sued for doing that. Now the question is, how do they get it? And right. that's that's a little bit unclear. Does it? Does, did they get it from a, a neighbor? Did they? Did some maybe drop the actual seeds onto their farm and then they they end up seeing that it's Roundup Ready and then they use it? I don't know. But you're absolutely right. And in the book we talk about it. The the detectives that Monsanto sends out to enforce this. Like, are you are you using our seeds illegally? You can actually do it. I don't know if we could do it, but you can call a, a hotline like today, like right now, and rat out your neighbor if you think Oh my God. If you think that they are planting seeds illegally. And let's be honest, it's a construct that it's illegal. Right. Farmers have been pl- saving seeds or right. borrowing from their neighbor or whatever. Right. Once you're in possession of seeds, as long as you didn't steal them from somewhere. Yeah, it's like this guy, you know, a cleaner might say, hey, here you can have some seeds. How cleaners. did that slip through? Like, is there, can you trace it back? Does, is there a time where they made some sort of an agreement with lawmakers to allow them to enforce this? Because this sounds like a crazy thing you shouldn't be able to enforce. Yeah. Because it's nature. You're essentially owning life, yeah. right? Yeah, totally. And there was a lot of debates about it. The, the big changes were in the 80s, where the Supreme Court said that it was okay to patent. The agenda. fucking Reagan days. <laughs> yeah, That's what it was. <laughs> a trickle-down economics from the old Gipper. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. Th- those 80 years were, that was when you see this explosion. A lot of wild shit happened. 
Yeah, that's including New Coke. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Maybe not as new. Uh, I was in but they school. were worried about Reagan, by mm. the way, when they did that New Coke. Were they? Because it was the war on drugs. So it's like, oh, right. we got to get it. We don't want to have anything to do with cocaine right. at this point. Just say no. There was just say no days. Exactly. Yeah. I remember that. I was, I was born in 81. So they, that's when they allowed them to hold these patents on plants, which is really it changed crazy. the game it but changed the game how much would be helped if they ruled that as something that's not just unnatural but illegal i like, mean it would totally have changed the game i mean it's hard I, to go put that genie back in the box is now, it you know i mean but you're you're i mean it's one thing if it's an actual intellectual property like if they've created something out of this that they have some process that where they create something and that's a very unique process to make a thing and then they sell that thing. This is not a thing. This is a life. Right. It's plant life. Right. Right. So the and there were people who made that it, legal argument are like, this is crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Because it's like, I mean, it, it's a life form. Yeah. How are we allowed to patent and own life forms? That seems. In this case, and what's weird, here's the weird thing about that first case, the Supreme Court case. It's called the Chakrabarti case. The, the person developing it was trying to develop a, a microorganism that could clean up oil spills. So, again, like the, the human story, it was like, that's not bad. Like, right, right, I right. Mean, but you then know, they make monsters. Right. And then, you know, you think about this, the, the technologies that go haywire. I was reading something about they were trying to develop something to uh, clean up the uh, garbage patch. You know, and there's uh, Boyan Slot, who's been on the podcast a couple of times, is a young wonder kind who's developed this uh, machine to scoop all the plastic out of the- Yes, incredible. The, yeah, it's incredible. And it's actually been implemented. And on top of that, he's actually now making products from that recycled plastic, and they're selling like, I believe it's like sunglasses and a few different products that they're making from it. But um, then there was more talk of some sort of genetically engineered bacteria that was going to eat the plastic. And I was like, and then when it runs out of plastic, <laughs> then what happens? It starts eating whales. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Don't do that. Like, this is a movie. Yeah. You're throwing this into the ocean. It's going to be a movie. It totally. And I, yeah. It always turns bad. Well, it's just like it's this arrogance of yes. not respecting nature, and you know, I think people think of that as like a hippie line or something. I don't think it is. It's I think not, it's just like it's not hippie. It's at like all. you know, biomimicry. Like, pay attention to it. You could see it everywhere. Like Australia is a fantastic example of that. Yeah. Do you know the history of Australian wildlife? Not not as intimately as like <sighs> wild wildlife in Australia and New Zealand as well. It's very what they've done there is very strange. New Zealand's a different example, but wi wildlife in Australia, they basically brought a bunch of shit over there, like a bunch of different deer and different things from Europe, and then they started having these problems with certain animals. So they go, well, you're gonna have to get some animals to kill those animals. So they brought over cats. Wow. And then the cats, uh, the feral Christ. cats over there, just fucking devastate everything. So now people go out and hunt cats. So, like, you know, if you have, like, a hunting magazine in America, you would show someone who hunted a deer. Like, right. look, he's going to eat this They're deer cats. Dude, they hold cats up. Right. I'm not exaggerating. Right. They hold cats up the way we would hold some sort of a horrible pest. And you're like, oh, my God, it's a fucking cat cat. <laughs> right. Like, it's like, meow. <laughs> Like you'd pet that cat like it's a fucking house cat. So they have this plague of house cats that are devastating ground nesting birds and all sorts of different types of wildlife. And they've brought in these cats to kill something else. And they're like, 
and then they have to bring in, they're trying to f figure out how to kill the cats. Here it is. Australia's cats kill 2 billion animals annually, which wow. is actually not bad if you find out how much American cats, American feral right. cats, American kill cats more than that. Wild, yeah. yeah. Uh, here's how the government is responding to the crisis. A new report from the federal parliament recommends cat registration, nighttime curfews. Nighttime curfews. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And spaying and neutering. Well, spaying and neutering would work. All that other stuff's fucking nonsense. But... <laughs> They've done this with um, animals in New Zealand as well. They have uh, all these prey animals, like stags and deer and all these different, but they don't have any predators. Interesting. So what they have to do is gun them down from helicopters and just leave them there sometimes because they, they have overrun populations. And then they also have a bunch of people that hunt in New Zealand and it's a destination for, it was actually developed that way. Like in the, I think it was the 1800s. I believe it was hunters from Europe. See if we can find like the history of New Zealand wildlife, but it's kind of the same thing. Like these fucking people just at one point in time when they didn't know any better said, wouldn't it be great if we had this place and we just filled it up with a bunch of animals? <laughs> Right, exactly. But, but we don't want any bad animals like wolves. So we're going to do this because yeah. we're smarter than the whole system. Exactly. Yeah. So they have fucking herds of wild stags and herds of deer. And, you know, and then Australia, of course, has their natural animals or their native animals like kangaroos and wallabies and all these different things are competing with these other new animals they brought in. It's a disaster. It is. And you know, it, it speaks to the same anger. You could argue that that's America in the early 1900s too, where we're like wiping out wolves, and then as a result, yep. we have like mice everywhere. And then well, right. we got to kill the mice. So right, you know, it's it's just a broken way of looking at, you know, the world. And I think that's why it's fun to do environmental history because we're always trying to say, come back to nature. It's actually not too bad. You know? Well, it's. It's not to go back to like no technology or anything like that. It's just to respect it and to there's, have, a, balance there's that, a balance that's achieved through natural like natural prey and predator balance is very important. And they're trying to do that. And there's, there's resistance right now. They're trying to reintroduce wolves to Colorado, and it's resistance is it's like a bunch of different sources of resistance. But some of it is from ranchers. That are like, listen, there's a reason why they killed off the wolves in the first place. They're devastating predators. They're really hard to manage. And then there's also the people that are the hunters that live in Colorado that are enjoying this sort of unnatural predator-prey balance. Mm -hmm. Like Colorado has more elk than I think all the other states combined. I think that's the it's, it, it for sure has the most elk of any state, mm -hmm. and doesn't really have things that eat elk. Right, like coyotes have they can't really eat elk. Right, you know, so they have coyotes, but coyotes mostly eat deer and rabbits and smaller things. It's very rare that they even get a calf because right. the the elk is such a large animal. But they bring in wolves, and you're gonna have a significant impact. And so people are kind of fretting about that. They, totally, it's but. You know they shouldn't have done it in the first place. Exactly, they shouldn't have killed them off in the first place. And then it all, then we're we're dealing with those legacies yeah. today. But when you bring them back, then you've there's a problem as well because you have animals that really haven't adapted to being preyed upon. They don't know what the fuck is going on. They get wiped out, and totally. that's what happened when they reintroduced wolves into Yellowstone. Right, it just devastated the population. But then they origin they eventually rather figured it out. Yeah, it's a. Uh, we were up in Yellowstone. Mosquitoes. That's the craziest thing in Yellowstone that we did. Really? Like, oh, my gosh. We went back um, on our honeymoon. My wife and I, we were back in the middle of nowhere in Yellowstone. 
And we were like, people were like bears and all this stuff. We were like, these freaking mosquitoes, man. They are like oh, wow. ravenous in Yellowstone. So watch out for bears. But really I've been to Yellowstone. I didn't experience the mosquitoes, but I did experience those kind of mosquitoes in, Aust- in uh, excuse me, Alaska. Yes. And they're crazy in Alaska. It's like you get wild to get back there in the I was fishing with my friend Ari and we, uh, we pulled into this uh, spot near like the trailhead and we went to get out of the truck. And as soon as we opened up the car, the car filled with mosquitoes. We were like, what the fuck? <laughs> Our idea was that we were going to get out of the car and spray ourselves down with repellent. Right. We, we Just opening the door. Oh, like, yeah. Instantly they found us. And there was 100 mosquitoes in the car. And they were huge. It's it's super scary. Um, you know, my brother's lived there for like 20 years. And every time I go up, I'm just like, you know, we, you have to like cinch down your like jacket and stuff when you get that in the backcountry with that stuff because it's nuts. And I grew yeah. up in like... Lived in Savannah, you know. I grew up in Georgia. Like it's different. They they can live a long time in Georgia. They don't. They're not so <laughs> rushed. Exactly. They've you got time. They're just picking people off. In Alaska, they have like a week. Yeah. You know, they're only alive for like you know <laughs> it's such a short amount of time where it's, it's warm enough for really them freezing. to live. Yes. Yeah. They just fucking go crazy. Did, but I was gonna ask you though, like food stuff. I mean, how do you think about food? I mean, when you know, I I think hunting is a part of what you do, fishing and things like that. I mean, yeah. How do you navigate this crazy food system that you've we've just said is not so broken? Well, I mean, I started hunting because of PETA videos, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I watched some of those videos of factory farming, right. the ones that there are, that are now illegal, which is really crazy. The totally. ag-gag laws, yeah. I mean, that is fucking crazy. If it's illegal to film something that would be abhorrent to most people. Right. Like, There's a problem. Right. Why is it illegal to show people like, hey, if you found out that the only way to make tires is to kill babies, and there was a, a factory where they're beating babies to death to make a tire, you'd be like, F- wait, I'm no. not buying tires. Yeah, why am I buying tires? Yeah. If you're finding out that the only way to get bacon is they have to stuff these pigs into these tiny cages and it creates these toxic lakes, and you've seen those when they fly the drones over these, these factory pig farms, you're like, what the fuck is that? Totally. Whether it's um, cows or pigs or chickens when they're stuffing them into these places. And it's horrific. And I was like, you know, I watched a few of those videos and I said, all right, I'm going to either become a vegetarian or I'm going to become a hunter. Like there's going to, I'm going to. Did you play with the vegetarian stuff? And it was like, yeah. I did when I was fighting. I, I was I was trying to make a lower weight class when I was uh, in my martial arts competing days. And it just didn't work for me. I mean, and it's very arguable that I did it wrong. It's very arguable that it's possible to do it right today not that arguable that the elite of the elite choose to eat vegetarian or vegan that's not really true you know yeah. if you really follow the, the the evidence that's not true that's like argued by these really zealous um, uh, vegan advocates and, and activists and I see why they would think that way and I see why they think that it's uh, smart but they, they're also unwilling to look at monocrop agriculture which is absolutely necessary for the, developing the amount of crops that you need to feed the entire country a vegetarian diet you're going to have to use monocrop agriculture and it's going to have to be crazy and also like farms work in a regenerative manner when they're done correctly meaning right. that Everything, just like we were talking about with uh, nature and animals and predators and prey, 
the way farms are supposed to work, the way things are supposed to grow, you have ruminants and these animals and they shit and that shit is fertilizer and it's, it's much more rich and it grows and it's actually a carbon neutral environment when done correctly. Right. You know, like the way Joel Salatin does it with his polyface farms and there's a few other um, really ethical um, people that have really thought this out and engineered their farms to rotate their crops and rotate the use of animal fertilizer, natural animal fertilizer with grazing, and they make sure that they do it all together, and, and it really can work. The question is, can it work at scale yeah. for the entire country? And I don't know if it can. It's an interesting uh, question. And, you know, I lived in Charlottesville for uh, a while, and my good, another Joel friend of mine had a, has a free union grass farm. They actually learned a lot of their tactics from Joel Saladin, who's mm. right over the hill. Uh, the mountain in, in Virginia. And, you know, I spend time with him and you're right. I mean, it, it actually get meat from him. You know, it's it's actually, it's incredible to watch the, the amount of thought and, you know, having animals move on various grassland and trying to kind of create this this system that is clearly not trying to take a freaking sledgehammer to, yeah. the, to the ground and trying to be like, look, the soil is amazing. It's like this incredibly... Uh, biologically diverse thing and the right. fact that we would just you know yeah as you're saying like not pay attention to it and just spray stuff on top of it i think it's yeah it's all supposed to work together right like the chickens and the pigs and all these different animals when you move these things around the way joel salatin does and you know use these sort of regenerative farming practices if done correctly you really can have a harmonious environment for both animals and plants. And totally. You, and you can grow all these things together. And you could do it in an ethical way. Like if I, you and see, I think the ethics is part of it. Like for me, yeah. that's the thing that once you start seeing that, you can't unsee it. Yep. And I think it's, it's – Agreed. And it's the same way I feel about some of these people too, like in these factories. Like I can't – Right. When you see either the humans being treated that way or animals, it, it changes – what you can eat. You yeah, know? I read something about this guy who was a journalist. I want to say it was in Esquire, and he worked. Um, I don't remember what magazine it was. I might be making that up. Might have been another magazine, but he worked as uh, on the line at uh, at a, a butcher place at, at a, a slaughterhouse, essentially. Mm -hmm. And he was, you know, essentially like dealing with cows coming in, coming out. It's crazy. And he was talking about the just the smell of death. That every day you would go in there and you would smell blood and corpses, and that was like this constant smell that was in you, like which is not normal, right? right. It's not normal for a person to experience, experience that every day. Like, yeah. If you lived on a farm and you had to kill a cow, you killed a cow once a year, or whatever, you know, once every six months or whatever you did, and you didn't just like kill a thousand cows a day and like cut them up and cut their organs out and just stand around with waiters because you're standing ankle deep in blood and guts literally like right. like these guys do like what kind of psychological effect must that have on a human being totally. that every day is just hooks and meats coming by and you're gutting it and spilling it out and cutting this and throwing it over there and like and you're making no money right and then you don't get paid anything yeah when this guy wrote this article about it and and also in the article he was talking about how this industry would completely fall apart if it wasn't for illegal aliens mm -hmm. he was like you know there's like i don't know how this is working i don't know how this is but everyone's like these undocumented workers that are right. doing this horrific really intense labor that's bad for you like in terms of like 
got to be bad for you psychologically. Totally. Absolutely. I think that was the turning point for me is just thinking about it. I think that's the problem is that nobody – part of it is just is just being being comfortable with being ignorant about it. And right. then people say, well, whatever, I'll just see it. And, you know, once, once you start having that connection, which I think is part of the history of the 20th century of our food system, is we just got disconnected from that. Yeah. Like we don't have that – Connection. Connection. Well, know? the good news about Texas is there's a lot of ranchers, and you can have uh, a relationship with uh, ranchers, or you can buy food from ranchers that that actually use ethical practices. And if you do a little bit of research and you find you, there's people that you can actually trust that do. Like there's the Rome Ranch. I know they have. Uh, that's the one that um, Paul Saladino uses, and they. They grow bison and cattle and a button. It's all grass fed, grass finished. They they roam through these fields and they just they live like animals do. And then they have like essentially one bad day, right? But they don't live and they don't really have a bad day. They have a moment in a day. They don't even know what the hell's happening. And also they get that pipe through the brain. And yeah, that's a wrap. Yeah, it's uh it, we got to change it. And I think it's not good. Yeah. So that's how I got into hunting. Yeah. And uh, I've been doing that. I've been hunting since 2012. So the the bulk of my diet is wild game. Wow. That's the bulk of my diet. And you feel good, and it's great. I think it has a lot to do with my vitality. I really do. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it must. It's mm-hmm. If you look at it, like I had a friend over this weekend, and I, I, I shot an elk last week. And uh, I was going over it, and I, I vacuum seal all the cuts of meat, and I was cutting up liver and vacuum sealing the liver, and I was cutting up um, all these different pieces of uh, the tenderloin and backstrap. And, and my friend was like, look how red this is. I'm like, this is what an animal's supposed to look like. Yeah. This is a healthy animal. This is like a super athlete animal. When you're getting a piece of like Wagyu beef, Right. That is a sick fucking animal. Mm-hmm. Like you're not supposed to have that much fat. You're you're basically eating like a slob. Yeah. Like if it was a human, there'd be a person who's really like depressed and something's wrong with them because they're like they're not supposed to be that overweight. This is terrible for your body. Right. And that's why they have to introduce so many antibiotics to these cows because so, they're eating a diet that's not sustainable for long-term health and and vitality for the cow. Like when you get grass-fed, grass-finished beef, like uh, one of my sponsors is ButcherBox, and you'd get these steaks, these ribeye steaks from ButcherBox, they'd be smaller than a ribeye that you'd get somewhere else because they don't have all this fat in them. And it's like, it's red. Like yeah. you, you get the meat, it's like a red meat. And people, they look at it, they go, oh, look how dark it is. Like, that's what it's supposed <laughs> exactly. to be. When you're seeing in that fact, sort of pale- coloring added to meat at- Grocery stores to really? make it. Yeah, oh, yeah, totally. There's a whole history of color. I know in they food. did that with salmon. I didn't know they did that. Uh, they with did, meat. in part, to try and make things look fresher and things like that. I mean, yeah, which is just kind of not so. Yeah, that's got to be bad for you. I think, that, you know, that's one side of the. Because when I was writing about the Monsanto thing, it wasn't just that, like, if this is a story about genetically engineered seeds. I mean, honestly, that comes later in the book. It's about all the other chemicals that end up like in our food system, you know, that aren't necessarily even chemicals designed for food, you know. That, like, like, like phthalates and things like that. Well, one of the ones that was crazy in the story is polychlorinated biphenols or PCBs. Mmm. <laughs> Tastes good. Yeah. It's no, yummy stuff. And this stuff is like- Dangerous shit. Super dangerous. Monsanto was the only producer of this stuff, of PCBs in the United States. They had two factories, one in East St. Louis and then one in Anniston, Alabama. And they made this stuff. And it was like, 
a wonder chemical. It came out in the 30s. And that's the shit that's in plastic bottles and stuff, right? Well, this is, it actually was banned in the 60s. So um, not not BPA, oh, right, which right. is in okay, the plastic what, bottles, yeah. which comes later. But PCBs were like crazy. I mean, they were in like artificial Christmas trees. They were in carbonless paper. They were in the paint that we lined our pools around. They were in the, actually in the paint in the silos that held grain. Oh, my God. And this stuff was like so insane and um, everywhere. But then, classic situation, 60s again, they're like, whoops, this stuff is like super toxic, like exceptionally toxic. And there's this document, I actually had it, I don't know if Jamie wanted to see it or not, but that's handwritten notes from this meeting in 1969 inside Monsanto, confidential document that they had where they're discussing like, what should we do with PCBs? Like we now know it's a global contaminant, it's super toxic, it's in everything. It was, it's everywhere, it's in breast milk, you know, at that time, because it's just everywhere. And they're discussing like, okay, what should we do? And it says, situation is snowballing, 1969, handwritten notes in this big meeting. Underneath it, it says, alternatives. Well, we could go out of the business is option number one, <laughs> which is weird. You know, it's funny. I told I was telling somebody about this document last night in Austin, and uh, yeah, here's is. the document. Wow, look at that. And this is from '69. This is this like confidential document, and what for people just listening, it's just, it's just handwritten notes, and it's a subject is snowballing. Where do we go from here? Well, we have a couple look, alternatives. Look at that. We can either go out of the business. Wow. That didn't sound great. Or we can quote, and this is what we're reading here, sell the hell out of them as long as we can and do nothing else. Well, it says sell as long? Oh, the hell out of them. Right, above (laughs) it. What what is amazing is that the guy took the time to like, no, wait a minute, (laughs) let's put a little thing up. And it's weird, like I'm, you know, there's a chuckle to it because it just seems so freaking absurd because the problem is that it's honestly not that funny, right? Like. It's horrible. This is crazy that the company does go on, by the way, to continue selling it. He wrote it. Sell, and then it's, you got to look at this, folks, if you can find it online. Yeah, it's Because you see, it says, sell as long as we can and do nothing else. And then after the fact, he wrote the hell out of them and then inserted it in between sell and as. You know, and then it's the big question. I like this. What do we tell our customers? And that's the, the big question. Thing. They're selling point. this to everybody, and they're like, and and part of it was also when do we tell our customers? Right. Like, which is like, and this is the kind of stuff you're seeing at this during this period in the '60s. You're like, what is going on? Um, and yeah, they have a bunch of other things about dog studies and things like that, but. PC, I mean, this stuff was crazy. It was in everything. It was in a, it's in Transformers actually. And firemen, fire rescue people, f- even today can you know if there's a big like transformer fire or something, they can be exposed to burning PCBs because they were allowed to remain in place. So this PCB contamination is still out there, and there are actually states, Washington State, I don't know all of them off the top of my head, Delaware, that are suing Bayer right now to pay for PCB contamination. From that long ago because it's still out there um, and they're winning and 
By the way, Bayer like made the worst decision ever. Can we just like acknowledge that? Like Bayer bought buys Monsanto in twenty eighteen. They were making aspirin. Everybody was happy. Woohoo! You know? <laughs> and they were making aspirin since the late nineteenth century. That's uh, a crazy thing. They've been like, We're not making enough money off this aspirin. <laughs> Fucking ibuprofen's taking the legs out of us, boys. Let's go it's time buy, to step up. Let's go buy the most toxic liabilities we possibly can think of. Oh, oh where's God. that? Monsanto. Oh, God. They bought them. For how much? About $63, $64 billion. Woo! It was the largest merger, I think, in like German history, German firm, a merger in a German firm. Of course it's they, German. They buy it. Well, here's the thing. The, the great irony of this is John Queenie, the guy with Olga Monsanto, his whole point for being was he wanted to beat the Germans. Wow. He wanted to, like, you know, be his independent American chemical company, patriotic, you know? And then they get bought out. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy, if he was alive, right, he'd be like, oh, man, the Germans got me. But you then think I think the Germans would be, like, super sensitive to anything that would be kind of, like, at least semi-genocidal. Well, and Bayer, you know, of course, the chemical company was associated with this, right? Nazi Germany and the chemicals that were created in that time. So that, that chemical industry has a really sordid history uh, of their own. But in terms of Bayer now, it was nuts. They buy the company. And by the way, the CEOs at the time, it was, it was one guy coming in, one guy going out. The guy going out was like, don't do this, bro. I'm sure they said bro. You know, like, <laughs> don't do it, bro. And it, and the the new guy Warner Bauman was like, nah, they've got some pretty cool technology. You know, look at all this stuff. How did the Germans get so advanced when it comes to chemicals? Because like, if you go to Fritz Haber and BASF, yeah, part of it had to do. They've been in the game for a very long time. They were the kind of front runners in organic chemistry in the late nineteenth century. Now, part of it had to do with a lot of great research institutions that were close to coal deposits, which were the source of all that organic chemistry, mm. and they just took off. Um, and so, you know, they had a they had a leg up. Though I will say, the oil boom in the United States in the early 20th century gave the Americans a chance because we had all this oil that we could use to make chemicals, and companies like Monsanto started to catch up. But when what's crazy is Warner Bauman buys Monsanto in 2018. Like literally a couple months later, the first Roundup case goes against Bayer. Now Bayer. It's $285 million for one guy in that Whoa. case, Dwayne Johnson. $285 million. The Rock? Exactly. Is that how The Rock got started? Well, he actually prefers Lee Johnson because of that reason. <laughs> Dwayne Lee Johnson. But, you know, he had uh, terminal cancer at that point when he goes to, to trial. Mm -hmm. And it was the first kind of case that went against Bayer. And it was right after Warner Bauman bought the company. Um, and everyone's like, Oh, and you can look at their stock price. It's nuts. It just it, they lose a third of their value within like a, a couple months after that. And then two other cases happen, and they're dropping. They actually by the end of 2019, they were, Bayer was worth the amount of money they paid to buy Monsanto. Holy shit! It was that bad. And so the CEO Warner Bauman goes into the shareholders meeting, and I have some pictures of the book there where he's like. Uh, sorry, you know, and he's standing in front of the stock price that looks like this and trying to explain it to his shareholders. And um, the shareholders aren't having it. They, they, they issue a vote of no confidence in the CEO and the board of management, which had never happened in the history of the DAX. Yeah, this is uh, a picture from, from that meeting. And that's him thinking about his future. 
Yeah, it's kind of an amazing picture because he just, was before that he was thinking about buying a yacht. <laughs> exactly. He's like, no yacht. Yeah. There will be no yachts. Things aren't looking so good, and so you know, I think this is a situation where uh, they are. They don't know what's going to happen because they're not only facing lawsuits. The Agent Orange is also still, you know, that's still an issue. They, what do they do with those? They just hold those off while the people die. Well, like, like basically, what that's what they're trying to do in some ways. You know, is, is this kind of delay, 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 delay. But yeah. the problem is these people aren't going away. There were one hundred and twenty thousand Roundup litigation cases that were filed or either were, were going to trial when I last looked. You know, back Whoa. when I was writing this book, this was. You know, people who are, are coming on hard, and it's just that's not just roundup PCBs. As so I said. is that like the only thing that can stop a company that is? It's uh, it's hard to say that a company is evil. Yes, I but, think you're, that's right. I don't think it's fair to say it's evil, right? There's, it's made up of people, and there's good people and bad people, and there's some people like that guy who ended up writing, "Let's sell the hell out of them as long as they can." That's evil. That's evil. Yeah, yeah, and it's clearly that does happen when you have these corporations that are acting to just have this constant never-ending profit stream and they look at that and there's the diffusion of responsibility that comes with having a large corporation you're not thinking of it as an individual but when you're thinking about a company that also is like responsible for a lot of the food that feeds all these animals and a lot of the food that feeds people it's like okay how much evil? Is it 30% evil right. and 70% good? Like, what's the net result of Monsanto existing? I think my, my feeling about it was simply, you know, I wanted to answer that question. Like, right. that was the driving question of the book. Wait a minute. How did a company that had all these, like, the most toxic compounds the world's ever seen basically be, does, help design our food system? Do you think you, like, to your own personal satisfaction, did you m come to a conclusion I mean, to that question, I think the answer is is pretty clear, and the answer is that they never really held accountable. Mm. You know, not by the EPA, not by the USDA, not. Do by... Do you think they're going to be now with all these different cases? It did feel weird. I mean, there's a precedent, right? It's been set with that enormous payout, and then and then all these cases in the wings. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bayer is f f like trying as hard as it can to, to try and settle all this. I mean, just talking sell. about fifteen billion dollars. I mean. It's an insane amount of money to try and settle something like this, but it reflects the scale of what's going on. How did they not see that company coming when they bought it? I'm telling you, there were people, like the guy going out that I was telling you about, who was like, don't do this, you know? <laughs> like, do you understand? I, You know, what I would say, Joe, is partially I think people don't uh, look to history. They don't mm. sit with it to say, this. look at how long this goes back, and look at how persistent this stuff is. We're still dealing with it. Yeah. Agent Orange is a good example. I mean, I went to Vietnam. We are now, most people don't know this, we are currently cleaning up Agent Orange in Vietnam for the first time. The dioxin contamination in Vietnam that was sprayed by the U.S. military. On the jungle? Yes, in those How are they cleaning that up? And just so people that, uh, you know, to fill in Agent Orange, why it was used in Vietnam. It was used as this defoliant, yeah, exactly, as you said, to kind of expose these jungle areas so that we could fight more effectively. And it was sprayed in an enormous quantity um, across the country. That dioxin persists, and it stayed in the environment through the 20, into the 21st century, into the 20 teens, and it's still there. Is there a half-life of it? 
I don't know what the half-life is, and I don't know how, in some, you know, in a lot of cases it will denature, but a lot of this stuff is still there, and there's hot spots. There were this re- there's research that was done um, that I talk about that shows all these hot spots. And so I flew there because I couldn't believe it. I was like, all right, what's happening? And no one's talking about it. Like, we, actually, you and I, Jamie, everyone in this room is paying, you know, taxpayers, U.S. taxpayers are paying for it. That's part of the thing, I think, going back to how do you get away with this? Right. You don't end up having to pay for stuff. Like Monsanto didn't pay us, has not paid a cent for that. For Was that a part of the agreement that they had with the military when they sold them the stuff? Part like, of the, the argument that they used in court and things like that is, look, we sold this to the government for the government's purposes, and you know, we can't be held. You know, the contractor's defense. We're we're just a contractor here, doing the bidding of the federal government. We have a certain degree of insulation, but what I'm trying to show in the book is. They saw things internally and knew things about their product that I think should blow that out of the water. It, just because you sell something to the federal government, and but you, but you, if you know that it's making your workers look like the people we saw, you know, are you not are you not in some way liable for trying to clean that up? Right. You know, and so in this case, it's it's totally nuts, Joe. So if you fly into Da Nang in Vietnam, which is one one of the former air bases of the US military and during the Vietnam War. And when you fly into that airport, on the south end of the air, of the air, airport tarmac is this huge concrete structure that we just have dumped soil into that has tremendous high concentrations of dioxin. This this just just finished 2015 2012 to 2017. This is how it works. They put all this soil into this huge concrete structure then they put electrodes, like a thousand of them, into that concrete structure and heat it up using electricity to like some insane thing, like 300 degrees Celsius, to basically cook the dioxin. Oh my God. And it costs like a hundred and I forget, $130 million or something for that one site. And that's how they do it. They have to put this dirt into a big concrete structure, burn it, and that's how we're going to go around Vietnam and clean up a lot of this dioxin contamination. That's but that there. also must kill all the biological material in that dirt. All right? that stuff. Like all yeah. the stuff that grows life. Sure. It's a total mess. So it's going to be a desert. Well, but again, you're looking, you know, they're looking at concentrated areas. A lot how do they of, know? How do they know if it's completely denatured? No, I mean, how do they know where the concentrated areas are? Well, part of it was where they stored a lot of the... Uh, Agent Orange. So air bases were really bad hotspots because they were just having those, you can think of, especially when you leave an area, right. it's just like all these big old tanks of Agent Orange were just and they there. they just left them there. Leaked and did all this kind of oh, disastrous God. stuff. So yeah, oh this my is- Oh God, uh, what the fuck? 22 photographs of Agent Orange inventory in 1974. Oh my God! This was a crazy trip for me because when look I went, at all those barrels. That's insane. When I went to Da Nang, we we, we didn't have access to <gasps> go on site. Look at that! That's crazy. It is crazy. You're looking at folks. You're looking. Oh, there at, it is. There it is. Uh, sorry, uh, medium. The medium.com one, Jamie. Um, right below that to the left. Overcoming the legacies. Yeah, yeah. That's that concrete structure I was talking about. You see all those electrodes going in? Yeah. Basically, they put. This is crazy. They have to do it in batches. So they have to cap it, put all the soil in, and then decap it, and then put in a new batch of soil, heat it, then take and it off. And what do they do with the old soil? I, 
you know, I don't know where they dump it. So but that's it all dirt. Have to Click on that again, Jamie. That same picture up right. Yeah. We, right there. See, they're capping it, it right there. Yeah. yeah. Look at that. Like that's all dirt. It's nuts. We got the same picture, by the way. We we couldn't get access to the site, so my my buddy who's a photographer and I, uh, John Zadier, we went and got up on this hotel, and there was like this crazy like you know, pool up there and people were drinking. It was the weirdest thing. I'm like filming this like insane story about dioxin. And this, and so this, this is happening as we speak. Yeah, this ju- this particular site just completed. Almost no one talks about it here in the country. Um, and it was a partnership between USAID and the Vietnamese government to finally start cleaning up some of the dioxin that was there. And by the way, you know, by this point, we've of course given benefits to veterans. We've done all sorts of things to try and as the right. U.S. government to try and write this. But in terms of Vietnamese citizens, you know, and that was part of the deal. We, we, whenever we were trying to do negotiations with the Vietnamese, they're like, hey, we'll negotiate once you clean up this mess, right. you know? So it became like this huge problem. But if you ask, where's Monsanto? And here's the crazy thing. Monsanto's now there. They just got permission to begin selling, guess what? Glyphosate? And genetically engineered seeds. Oh, my God. So the story comes back, right? And it's like, <laughs> What? Do they? Well, they say good news. We have Agent Orange resistant. Right. Exactly. Well, and in a seeds. way, I mean, in a way, Joe. Again, like it's so crazy, but in a way, that's probably true down the road because, and I, I want to be clear, it's not necessarily Agent Orange, but two four D. That's that dioxin. second half. That's not the dioxin one. This is the uh, the other one that didn't have dioxin. Oh. But it's still part of that Agent Orange. And it's not, it's not like it's, it's it's more toxic than glyphosate in a lot of ways, right? It's, oh, it's toxicity profile, but it's not the two four five T with dioxin. But anyway, so it's still being used two four D that other half of Agent Orange. So it's two four D and two four five T. I know okay. it's like my lord, my mind was swimming in numbers because yeah. of these chemicals, and that's part of it. I think a lot of these chemicals are named stuff like this, like, eh, whatever. Like, who's paying attention, right? Uh, polychlorinated biphenyls. Who wants to talk about that? Yeah, well, it's all around us, you know, and we have to pay attention to it because we're exposed to it. And in this case, you kind of saw that there, Jamie. No reason to bring it back, back up, but there was that, like, lake at the end of the... Mm-hmm. You were talking about fishing, and, you know, a yeah. lot of people in Vietnam, they're fishing in those ponds and things like that, and that was the problem. They were being exposed to super high levels of dioxin. So, by the way, we're cleaning up the dirt, but we're not necessarily taking care as effectively as we could be of the people themselves who could be exposed to dioxin in Vietnam, which is a big debate right now. How do we take care of the legacies of that war and that? And one could argue, well, given what we know about the history, shouldn't there be companies that take? And you could say this. okay, screw liability. Forget the legal argument that whether, okay, they have the contractor's defense or whatever. But if you're a company like Bayer and you want to come in and sell seeds, I mean, I'm just talking out of goodwill. You know, you know this is part of the history. You know that we didn't clean this up. Right. Like, you're a multi-billion dollar firm. Shouldn't you have some responsibility for going back and taking responsibility for that, you know? Fuck. So, and then all those people. All those people. All those lives lost. All yeah. those people that had horrific diseases directly connected to Agent Orange. And there's been some really brave writers, you know, that have been writing some op-eds recently from from Vietnam who are trying to 
to just continue to make sure that people don't forget about this, you know, and tell this story. And just to, just to put a fine point on it, that right now, you said, is it happening right now? I, I just want to be clear on it. Um, that it, right now, they've moved to another American air base that's just outside of Ho Chi Minh City, former American air base, in Binhua. So if you're interested in this topic, uh, right now, there's a massive dioxin remediation project that, again, USAID and the U.S. government's doing. The companies that were sold this stuff are not nowhere to be seen, hmm. but we're paying for it, and it's a much more expensive project because it's way more expansive. So this Da Nang project is completed? It's completed. So does that mean you can go there and eat off the ground? Well, you know, it's th- there's... Other contaminants, I I might be concerned Just about five too. Five second Chemicals. rule count. Yeah, I don't think it's a, a five second rule, but but I do think it's gone a long way to prevent this leaching of dioxin into those lakes and leaching other contaminants in there. And I think it's made it a much safer place. So but I think that human health costs. Yeah need to be taken care of. So to be clear, the cleanup is essentially just the storage areas. It's not the areas they sprayed. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of areas, these are hot spots in part because the heavy, con- you can think that the Vietnam yeah. War has been, you know, over for a long time. So the, the, the hottest spots were places where there was storage, not so much necessarily where the, the spraying went. Right. We, we were looking at this again for the folks that are just listening. We, we looked at like multiple football fields filled with stacked drums of Agent Orange. That's what the images were. That's scary shit. And you said that is small in comparison to the new project that they're... Right. The Da Nang site was a much more... Man- I mean, like most projects governments take on. Um, yeah, this is um, down in... It uh, looks like Benoit. Yeah, this that's the whole site that's contaminated? All yeah. that's blocked off? Yeah, a lot of these... Diff- yeah, you can see... Pacer Ivy was also the name of the kind of that's removal of Agent Orange from that's uh, bigger than Austin, the U.S. Well, that's just the 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 Green Line is the boundary is the of the boundary. airport, is, and then is the boundary of the those airport. are the hot spots. The hot spots. Oh, yeah. I see. So the red areas are the hot spots. Yeah. So they have to, and of course that's leaching into the ground. So any well water, water, all these things. Yeah. yeah, it's it's you know, and and they've been there's studies. I mean, it's not like it's. We don't know. We, one of the reasons we've gone in is because we know that people have exposure to it. You know, it, it spreads. And, uh, and and there's little lakes there, too. See the lakes that are right next to it? Yeah, exactly. There's all these waterways and things like that. It's kind of nuts. So, Mr. Mr. Hawk Lake. Mr. Hawk's got his own lake. Mr. Yeah. Hawk, exactly. We actually, it was crazy. I remember this day because... How think, about that? Mr. Coy has his own lake, too. But his lake's not fucked up. Mr. Hawk's lake's all in the hot zone. That's a bullshit lake. Uh, Imagine being Mr. Hawk. He's like, these fucking Americans. I had a nice lake. We went on motorcycles to get there, and all I remember was we were just covered in just, like, dirt because we, we couldn't figure out how to get out there. And were we you worried? Um, this, these were a couple of hectic days for me because, you know, I was just a historian. I, 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 I was not an experienced journalist at that time and hadn't really learned some of the trade and I was kind of showing up and knocking on doors. I went to the headquarters of Monsanto in Vietnam to ask questions. But what I meant is you worried about exposure from driving around with the Oh, dirt. that. Yeah, no. I less more about like getting Monsanto killed. or you know, yeah, yeah. being in in trouble in some way. Not necessarily the dioxin exposure there. I will say this, this is crazy. So I did get really worried. I went to the site where Roundup is manufactured and so to Springs, Idaho. So this is where the elemental phosphorus that goes into glyphosate to make the herbicide is. And um, it's crazy because 
It comes from phosphate rock that's mined from the mountains there. And as a byproduct of producing elements of phosphorus, it's radioactive waste that's generated. This is definitely viewable, uh, Jamie, on uh, Google. You can look like Soda Springs slag pile phosphorus. <laughs> I think it'll pop up. So, and it'll be helpful just to, to talk about it when we can see it. But basically, um, there it is. That's Whoa. that's my piece, the Descent Magazine piece there, the second one. Uh, my buddy John Zader took that picture. So what you're seeing here is this mountain of charcoal waste. That's the the leftover slag. That's that's this is done every 15 minutes. Every 15 minutes, there's a dumping of this slag waste. This is how you produce. They make Roundup. This is the elemental phosphorus that goes into glyphosate that makes Roundup. And what we're seeing is these cauldrons that are dumping like lava-like. Yeah, you can see a good shot there sludge down the down this mountain. You can see that barbed wire fence. So we stood there for a long time and took pictures of all of this. But basically, this this waste, as you can see, it's now just this mountain because they can't put it anywhere. It's it's essentially, you know, it, it has radionuclides that make it dangerous if you're going to use it. So is that an artificially created mound? That's yeah. It looks like a mountain, but you, there's nowhere to put it. So we're just dumping more and more of this waste higher and higher. This is insane. So this initially was flat ground? No, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It's the south end of the plant, um, of the plant. And you, you, know, you can see the plant up there. That's kind of the plant. The Where is this again? This is in Soda, Soda Springs, Idaho. We camped out there at a super fun site. Oh, that's fucking My crazy. friends always say, my students always say, Super fun? And I'm like, not super fun. The opposite of super fun. Super fund. <laughs> you know, like like <laughs> the most toxic sites. Them dumping that lava shit and creating these mountains. So that's one of the most toxic sites. So what happens when that stuff gets rained on? Well, you know, there's all sorts of questions about the long-term effects of this. And so let, let me just make this l weirder, okay? Oh, boy. So, so, this, <laughs> so this pile of slag, okay, is a, is a pile because... In the 70s, they finally prevented Monsanto from selling this stuff as aggregate to build things out of. Okay? So what? the town of Soda Springs in Idaho and Pocatello nearby used the slag waste, the slag waste as an Bricks? aggregate to build, basically to build basement foundations and roadways and their <sighs> sidewalks and stuff like that. And... The it, let me make sure I get all this because it's just so wild. So basically, the EPA comes in in the '80s. Remember, a lot of this stuff is happening even before there's even an EPA. You know, in the '70s, so things are just going kind of wild. But they come in in the '80s and they do these radiological surveys. They actually fly over and look for gamma radiation and like, oh, folks, like. There's elevated levels of gamma radiation coming out of like basement foundations oh, and Jesus. school buildings and whatever else they've used for its streets and things like that. And, you know, they're like, you can't do this, you know? And so one of the reasons there's that pile is because it was like, well, we can't sell it anymore. So it's just kind of getting higher and higher. Um, and 
it was really a weird story. We went there and, and kind of uh, stayed there for a couple of days just to kind of get a sense of it. And the mine sites themselves, where they mine the the phosphate ore, are all super fun. Were super fun sites, and super fun goes comes from the Super Fun Act of 1980 that designates the most. You need a hard D there, sir. Super fun, exactly. <laughs> Is this super fun? And I'm like, <laughs> it seems like not for the people living there. You know, it's it's a problem that word. But those sites are. So what happens there is the the overburden piles, the waste piles from mining the rock have heavy concentrations of selenium. And you were talking about hunting. So what, what happened there was these overburden piles leached selenium into the grassland. Grassland picked up that selenium and animals, and animals died oh, as geez. a result of eating that selenium. By the way, Monsanto called this at the time, the, this is our sustainable environmentally friendly herbicide. Oh, right. Christ. And you're like, this is how it's manufactured. So when they made basements and these various structures out of that stuff, that waste, they recognized eventually that this is a problem. And then what do they demo everything and then put it onto that pile? No. So this is what, this is what like was the weirdest thing. And that's why I think you have to go as a writer to these places because you have to kind of listen to what happened. And I was expecting like Love Canal. Right. You know, expecting like, you know, the town rises up and you've got uh, Los Gibbs and others. Are, they're going to say, hell no, we're not going to have this. But what happens is the EPA comes in and they're like, get the heck out of here. You know? They, they kick the EPA out? It, it, you know, not physically, but when they came in to do the hearings, they were like, we don't want you to designate our town a Superfund site, which what there, there was a suggestion that the EPA might do that for the whole city. Um, and we're not talking about high levels of gamma radiation. I want to be clear. It was, it was fairly low levels, but it was still above background. And the EPA thought it was a problem. They said, look, you know, you, we've got to do something about this. But the town kind of rebels against the EPA. It's not like they're welcoming the regulators coming in. And that's partially because town of 3,000 people, this is a huge plant. There are other phosphate plants from, for making fertilizer and other things from other companies that are there too. And I think part of it is a story of, these companies have, you know, they're a lifeblood. Yeah. And we're okay with this low level of radiation. You know, think about radon in basements and things like that. Mm -hmm. We'll just deal with it. And so the EPA is kind of like, oh, what do we do? And they kind of listen. They try this decentralized strategy of like, all right, we'll work with this town. Oh, and so demos don't happen. Like most people just have those houses and... Just deal with it. it, it and just and, and so, for example, deal with it. Are there health consequences because of this that you can track? I, I don't. I haven't seen any data that says you know we've seen precipitous increase in cancer rates or things like that. But I'm I want to follow that because you know we're looking at how over the long term are we going to see um, you know long term health issues. But what I will say is, you know, <laughs> the the public health agency in the town. In the recommendations, and you, you can see this online too, it says, well, folks, if we're going to live with this, it literally says, spend less time in your basements. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> like, imagine, oh. Joey, like you've just remodeled your house or whatever. Oh, my God. It's like, just don't go down there. <laughs> oh, my God. That is so crazy. Spend less time in your basement. True story. Oh my God! Don't and, we don't want you to die? So just leave some stuff. Don't leave food down there. By don't the way. put Nintendo down there. Oh, the kids will not be happy. Oh uh, my God! Whatever happens. Well, and, and we even 
I was going to say that we even tried to get into a, a river and, and kayak into see one of the mine sites because they were closed off. And we thought the only way we could get there is if we paddled. And so we had these boats and we like put them in and this, this person came up beside us and was like, you're not getting in that river. And Whoa. my photographer buddy, who I think just spaced for a second, was like, why? Is it polluted? You know, what's going on? And I was like, John, he's saying we're not getting in that river because he didn't want us to get in that river, you know? Um, and I'm not so – I can't confirm that, like, that's why he was telling me not to get in there. Was, was it his – did he think I was going to be going through his property because we were on a public land access point? But did he not want us to go by his property? Or was it that he was like, who are did these out-of-towners – to do this. Well, we weren't going to go on the, you know, the way the river was going to go. So we was he have threatening? I'm confused here. Was he threatening you? Yeah, it was one of those things where I thought it was clear that he was like, we don't want you to go in that river and go on whatever journey you're going to go on to, to see this, potentially to see this story. And I don't know whether it was he was worried about us exposing something or seeing something or whether it was just, you shouldn't be here. You're, you're, you know, you're not from here. And I don't know why you're getting in this river and you shouldn't, you shouldn't do it. But it wasn't that he was worried about your health. No, exactly. Okay. It wasn't that. That's what John thought. I guess right. that may, maybe it was logical. I was just so paranoid at the point that I, I, I knew immediately that it was not about. But he didn't have any authority to keep you out of that river. In, in my opinion, no, because it was a you know you can you can paddle in the middle of a river. You have a right away to do that. Right, but he, you just listened to him. I did. Do you wish you didn't? Like maybe you would have saw something. Um. I think I saw what I needed to see. Do you think? I did think he that's know, part of the story. Well, it's a small town. Yeah. So when you start asking around, people start talking, and because of the fact that they're so reliant on these plants, do you think that they were concerned that you guys could screw it up and they would lose their livelihood? So they saw you, and you're about to get in that water, and like this guy's going to cause trouble. I don't know. You, you know, know, Joe. I don't know. It's just guesswork. It's guesswork. But it was one of those moments. I, I all I'd say, Joe, is that given what I had seen of the town's response, it seemed plausible to me, right? That that was what was so surprising about that chapter. You said earlier, like, how did Monsanto survive, you know, to become the seed company? Or how did they get away with it, I guess, right? It's one of the things. And that chapter is about, like, the loyalty of some of these smaller towns, you know, mm. that, like, and the, and the kind of, this is our lifeblood. Well, you know, you see that, and, like, I'm sure you've seen Roger and me, right? Mm -hmm. You see yeah. that in these towns where a a, a big company does pull out of the town and if they're dependent upon that town economically it's devastating it's a horrific thing totally and you think you're talking about remodeling i mean I, I mentioned this in the book like what are you going to do right so like okay you've got kids so you're going to have them come in and rip out your foundation um you know and, th and that wasn't there were options proposed by the company look if you really need us to do this we'll go we'll take out your your foundation and do that but most people aren't going to do that and also they're the homes, the home value. Like part of it was we don't want to be a super fun site because right, it'll you know, fuck up everything. That everything I've invested we've worked my for. time and effort into my mortgage. This my is house what be worth nothing. This yeah. is what I mean by like a human story. Like yeah. you know, I, I don't blame a lot. Sometimes it was hard to blame people for what's going on. It's like you know, it's systemic in some ways. Yeah, it's not great, but it is all they have. Yeah, that's their town. Small towns that are relying on a, a big company to take care to take care of them like that. That's uh, it's a very precarious situation. If that company goes under, you know, good luck moving your family. You have your kids go to school in that town. Your entire income is based on that that company. Like that said, and this is important to point out, there were people that were like, 
hell no. You know, this is not right. The the biggest group of people that I found, I followed a Freedom of Information Act request to get these documents, but uh, were the the landowners around the plant who were farmers, ranchers, or whatever, mm. who were like, uh-uh, we don't work for this plant. Right. And what are you talking about? This is going to get cleaned up. In fact, it was like this family feud. It was an amazing family with like the, the grandmother who was like 80 years old was writing to the EPA and her letters were amazing. Fortunately, you can get them because they're public records. And I was like, she was like, I feel like I'm trespassing on my property to get to, to you know, past all this pollution that's on my land. And you're telling me I have to deal with it? Because for those owners, they were saying, well, look, you just have to have like, you can't do certain things on it. And they're like, what are you talking about? I can't do stuff on this part of my property. You know, right, like, just because you guys have more money than us? Yeah, exactly. Like, this is not a, a deal that works right. for us. And yeah, and, and ultimately what happened to this family, they fought and fought. Actually, it was so crazy, uh, Joe, because I, w- I gave a talk. I, I, have, I gave very few talks when I was writing this, by the way, because I wanted to, to be able to talk to people both inside the company and outside it without, you know, being a public figure talking about Monsanto, I wanted to be able to go to places and be relatively anonymous, you know. Um, but I gave one talk in Utah about what I was finding at this site. And after I gave the talk, I'd shown that FOIA letter about that family that I'd found of, you know, that was fighting. Mm-hmm. And this, I swear to you, this guy comes up to me at the end of the talk and he goes, dude, they're my neighbors. And they're like now in their 80s or I don't even know, maybe even 90s. They were super old and they were still alive. The people had written those letters. The, the kids of that older grandmother were still alive. And I was like, oh, my gosh, let me go interview them. Because I wanted to figure out, like, so what happened? You right. know, because like the archives only go so far. And we sat down and had dinner with them. They were like an amazing couple and super sweet. And they were talking to me and they were like, they bought our property. You know, they, they bought us out basically. And for a good price, like they they gave us. And so one of the ways that they that Monsanto, you know, suppressed the resistance from people like the landowners was to buy their properties and offer them a lot of money. And um, some of these families agreed to that. Interestingly, by the way, after that talk, just so you know, uh, the the university I gave the talk at. Their caller ID the next day, they told me this. They said it just, they got a call and it just said Monsanto. And I was, you know, look, I got two kids, you know, I'm writing this as a relatively unprotected person who goes out and tells these stories. And I was, I was nervous, you know. Just a sheer amount of money that's involved. Yeah. Like I don't have billions of dollars to go up against a company like Bayer. And is it concerned that they would sue you or kill you? Less kill. I think my mother, uh, who's passed, but used to say, I'm worried you're going to get snuffed out. And I always used to say, Mom, it's okay. I'm not going to get snuffed out. That's such an old school way snuffed of saying out. it. Yeah. It's like, ugh, no, Mom. But um, but more just, yeah, like what what could be the ramifications of right. that? And and you know, the same thing kind of happened with Coke, you know, when I was talking about coca leaves and all that stuff, you know, which is all there and backed up in the archives. This is not stuff that's not provable. Um you know, you just feel a certain degree of like, ugh, what could happen? Yeah. And when they called, I was like, ugh. And they wanted to do like a rebuttal to, this, to the story to be like, you know what? We've actually fixed a lot of the mining problems and things are getting better in Soda Springs. 
I would and, love to hear their conversation about that pile, the mountain. Yeah, like explain to me how that's sustainable. You right. know, is You're really what keep I would love. Building that until it reaches the moon. Yeah, I mean, what's <laughs> the story? And it's getting. You know, one of the arguments is that you know, at some point you're expanding closer to, to the actual facility. So we're looking. Uh, yeah, the video here of it. Um, it's really wild. It's really wild at night, actually, because oh, because you see the molten oh, lava. It's just like look how they're lights it. up the sky. Now, it's, what the fuck is going in the air when they're doing that? Good question. So look at that stuff. The stacks. I know that the some of the stacks. Looking at the data, uh, they were releasing, you know, low levels of polonium and various things into the air, and it's just a crazy sight. And and it goes back to like, come on, a fifth grader can look at that and say, this is the future of agriculture. Like this is sustainable. You right. know, how long can you do that for? How long can you do that? Well, and it also goes back to a finite resource, right. phosphate. Right. So it, this herbicide's going to sustain us forever is coming from this. But also, like, how do you do that and not have a sustainable plan for getting rid of that pile? Like, yeah. Maybe Jeff Bezos can shoot it into space. Exactly. Space dust. And just sell it to Amazon. Maybe Amazon could buy Monsanto cheap now and go, this is what we're going to do. Well, weirdly, I'm writing a lot more. I'm writing this project right now that's about all these, like, the the logistics companies um, and thinking about the environmental footprint of firms that we don't tr traditionally think of as firms that have big environmental footprints, right. including banks. By the way, I'm writing environmental histories of banks. Like we don't think about banks as having an environmental footprint, but they do. They have a huge environmental footprint. They have to um, ship money around. They have to ship money around, but it's also like just the incredible capital they have to to be able to decide whether there's going to be an oil rig here or you know deep water horizon well here did you talk to anybody from monsanto about all these various issues yeah did you talk to them about this mountain of shit um internally about this particular thing i didn't talk to them about that but i did talk to people um about a lot of different things and it was it was interesting some of the people in monsanto actually reached out to me um and i had to kind of learn a little bit on the fly about how to talk to sources that were really sensitive like that. And I had a bunch of lawyers for the first time that I would talk to you about, how do I protect these people mm. who want to talk to me inside the company because I don't want anybody to get hurt. And there's a, a section in here about a, a person um, who wanted to tell his story in this book. And I included it in the book, um, but I ultimately... Uh, he ultimately couldn't go on the record. Like he, I couldn't actually include what he wanted to say. I could just talk about our debates back and forth about whether he was going to go on the record mm. in the book. And it was about a chemical that is currently being used. And it was about how it got approved and how he felt things should have gone. Uh, and, and, and the evidence that was used to get that approval from the government, he knew things about that that he thought were deeply problematic. But but by going any deeper than that, on, on spe that specific piece of evidence, I would identify him mm. because he had such close access to that. And he was the person who would know that. And so here's a person who's got a pension, who's got kids, college age and things like that, and he's trying to figure out, okay, do I go on the record or do I not? And we went back for months on this, like, do we talk about it? What do we do? He got his own lawyers. We talked about it. And ultimately, 
He said, I just can't do it. And I think that's also part of the story. It's just like regular people in these companies who actually do have a pretty good conscience, but who are like, the risk reward here is so extreme. Right. You know, if things go bad, I've signed an NDA, you know, and we, you know, what happens? Well, if you go all the way back me. to the history of the the those people that got dioxin poison and they lost the case, and then they took liens out against their homes. That is some messed evil up stuff. Shit. Here's the crazy thing about that case. I want to get this right. I'm sorry, I get a little bit fired up on some of these things because part of it is it matters. I I feel like there's a certain degree of onus I have to, to tell some of these people's stories who don't get to tell it now because they're not here. And in this case, let me tell you about the end of that case. Because when you look at it on Google, it'll say Monsanto wins. And they did. They won technically that case. But here's what happened. I went into every single note in that particular case. Um, I went to, it was all the documents were housed at the Philadelphia National Archives. So I went through them. The jury, when they issued their decision, they did something not unprecedented, but super rare. They're like, we want this document read into the public record. Didn't end up in a lot of the newspapers or anything like that, but this is the document that was in the archives. And they said, we're finding that Monsanto technically, based on West Virginia law, cannot be held liable here because of the technicalities of West Virginia law, which the, the technicality was they had to prove that Monsanto willfully, recklessly, and wantonly hurt these people. Those were the words, willfully, recklessly, and wantonly. And that stand, that bar these jurors felt was just a little bit too high. Now you could argue, wait a minute, look at what they knew. How could they, how could they not say this is reckless? But the jury felt that that bar was too hard to hit. But they said in this document, there is no doubt that these people were harmed by these chemicals oh. you know, that were in this plant. So we want this read into the record, that we feel this way about it. The foreman of that jury worked at Union Carbide. He was a chemical person. You could tell he was torn. It, you know, he wasn't an anti-chemical person, but he even was struck by like how nasty this stuff was. Get this, though. So after that happened, as I said, Monsanto says, you either pay us our court fees or we take your house. And I interviewed the lawyer who knew all these people, uh, Stuart Caldwell, um, and he, he told me, he said, to a man, I sat him down. I said, look, they're going to take your house. What do you want to do? And uh, he said that one of them said to him, said, they could take my house, but can they give me 30 days to get out? I mean, they were, they were ready to go to it. But the judge, Caldwell, went back and said, you, judge, you can't let Monsanto do this. And ultimately, the judge was like, yeah, this is unconscionable. No. You know, and ultimately reverse it. I think Stewart had to make an argument to to get that released, but ultimately it was. But get this: a couple years later, that foreman I was telling you about from Union Carbide, he finds out that there was evidence in that case that because of technicalities, he they weren't allowed to see as the jury. And I don't know the you know the legalness of it, but there was a document from the EPA that showed just how expansive the pollution was and all this stuff. And he says this clear as day. If I had seen this document, my verdict would have been different. And he says, I hope that all my other jurors, and he was the foreman, would have said the same thing. And at the end of that interview, which almost no one had seen, 
because you know it, it was buried he said i just can't get out of my head you know i feel like you know i just can't get it out of my head like i've let you know i think what he's saying there is I let people down so when you see that case the the monsanto case in west virginia related to these nitro workers it may it looks like well i guess monsanto did anything wrong even the jurors who let monsanto off in a way later say we shouldn't have done it right so what was the <clears throat> what was the reason why they were allowed to withhold that evidence I don't know the actual kind of legal reason why. That freaks me out. It's, but this happens a lot, right? Yeah. There's just a reason that, no, that evidence could be confounding. I think it had to do with the fact that it was relatively present day at that time. It was like 80s report on the pollution, the persistence of the pollution problem. And I believe the judge was saying, look, you know, this evidence has no bearing on what was going on 50s and 60s. It's not admissible. Um, there might have been another legal reason I don't I'm not aware of, um, but ultimately they weren't allowed to see that. But if you know, the point is that that evidence would have been pretty powerful to say. Look mm. at look at how contaminated the site was, right. you know, um, and how again reckless that is if you're going to have that kind of contamination. Um, we're already three hours in, almost two hours and twenty minutes in. So I I want to get to this. Yeah, is there a way? that anyone can distance themselves from this company? Like, is there a way you can not contribute economically? Is there a way you can protest what this company has been involved in and what they're doing? Is there, is there a way you can do something? Yes, I do think there are things you can do. There are small things and there are big things. I've thought about this. I mean, I think one thing that you can do if you don't think this type of agriculture as we saw that graph, the petrochemicals, the just we're growing in our petrochemical dependency and you don't want to be a part of that. I do think you can choose if you, if you have the means to buy organic foodstuffs to support, as we've talked about, farmers who are doing regenerative agriculture, trying to grow things and produce meat and food in a different way. And I, and some people would poo-poo that and say, okay, you know, what can what does that really do? I think it matters. I think you know, as a consumer, you can make a choice to try and support farmers and to get connected to farmers in some ways. But if you're living that in like that. Detroit or something like exactly. that, exactly, city, it's it, so hard. It, it is, and and I think that's why I think because it's a matter. It's, it's also a class issue. It's also an access issue and a financial issue. right? Totally a financial issue, and all these things. So not everyone can support that. So I'd also say the onus is on people who do have the time to try and fight for change that we have to we have to stand up and we're seeing that right now How we're many seeing people, I'm sorry keep going I was just going to say we we're seeing right now thousands of cases being brought by people and not just people that are saying look my cancer was caused by this but we're also seeing cases that are trying uh, organizations and uh, Center for Food Safety for example among many others that are trying to say look these chemicals are questionable we're petitioning the EPA to stop registering these chemicals and to try and change these things. I think getting in that kind of structural level of trying to change, you know, getting in some of those battles is important for us, especially for those who have the means and ability to fight those larger fights. And also talk about the farm bill, you know, put pressure on congressmen to say, wait, wait a minute, why are we subsidizing the, you know, corn and soybean? I mean, 
the only reason that a lot of these farmers are able to make profits is because they're getting massive subsidies to do so. And aren't these subsidies that were left over from World War II? You could even go back even further in a way to the New Deal, you know, in the 30s. I mean, this was all a response. And this is what's so crazy. Like, we were already producing too much. The whole problem was we had a surplus. The idea that we needed, like, we got to grow more, we got to grow more. These We were growing too much. So that's why the price of, of wheat and everything was plummeting, because we had this just huge bounty. Wasn't the origin of it, though, that they were preparing for war? Yeah. and well, That was the, the subsidies, right? The whole idea was to subsidize the farmers to make sure that we had an abundance of food because they were preparing for war and they wanted to make sure that they could feed everybody. There's a little bit of that, for sure. That's, that's part of the story. There's also the story of these government programs coming in to try and give farmers uh, a kind of support in times where there was so much surplus. There was so much being produced in the 30s and 20s, a lot like the AAA, the, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, was passed as a means of being able to allow farmers to keep producing a lot of corn and, and, and commodity crops, but give them loans and support that could sustain them when the price of those products plummeted. And then, to your point, the real big change was in the 70s, actually, when Earl Butts, a great name, USDA Agricultural Secretary, really like put gasoline on our farm policy saying, okay, what we need to do now is grow, as he put it, crops fence row to fence row. We're going to start subsidizing the production of all these different commodity crops and not putting any restrictions on the acreage or getting rid of some of these acreage restrictions that were often tied to those subsidies. That was the big shift in the 70s, saying mm. you don't have to reduce your acreage. You know what? We're going to give you these subsidies, and you can grow, as he put it, fence row to fence row. Grow as fast as you can. We're going to subsidize that. Part of that was because of the 70s. This, we were At that time, there was a concern about our surpluses dropping. And so we kind of started the system that has continued, where we're just we're subsidizing the production of really animal fodder. That's what we're doing on most of our land. And is there an abundance to the point where it's wasteful? Is there abundance to the point where we have more that we can use? Totally. I mean, we're when what do they do with it? When I joke to people all the time, I say when I talk to the weed scientists, um, you know, when we're out there and people are saying, "Well, this is about feeding the world. We need this genetically engineered trait to feed the world." He's like, "All oh, this is going." to feed all of this stuff. What are we doing with it is a great question. We end up putting it into different programs. Ethanol is a great example of this. Mm. Like we have so much corn, well, we got to figure out a way to put it somewhere. Ah, we'll put it into a fuel program. So we'll start putting it into gasoline. It's not an issue of productivity. Like we've got a lot of productivity. Um, I think that's part of the myth of our food problems is that productivity is the problem. Productivity really isn't the problem. Our, our bigger problem is distribution, the types of crops we're growing on the land that we have, and uh, you know the, the, the ways in which we're equitably, equitably distributing it, and also food waste, just tremendous amounts of waste of the average consumer. You think about even our own practices at home today. We have a lot of food. It's now about figuring out how to grow the right types of crops, growing these more biodiverse fields as opposed to these monocrops and changing the game. That, to me, I think is the future of food. It's not about, you know, can we produce more corn and soybeans next year than we did last year? But 
is there a way to incentivize people to do that, to grow these biodiverse sort of farms? Absolutely. You know? I mean, look at it. You know, as I said, and I, I wish I could pull up the numbers for how much a soybean farmer gets in terms of a per acreage subsidy from the federal government or listeners can do that themselves or corn. It's, 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 it's a lot of money. And what if we took that money and instead of subsidizing a system that we know is out of control or we're growing way too much of this stuff and turn it towards subsidies that supports the types of foods that's going to nourish our bodies instead of necessarily going to animal fodder and, 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 and nourish our country. You know, the farm bill can be radically changed and it should. I think, to reflect that interest and in, in getting away from some of that monocrop cultivation. So this is all relatively new in human history, right? This, this way of growing things. It really started in the 20th century, and now we're continuing it now. Is it possible within a reasonable amount of time to shift the way we do things? And is do, do people know about this? Like, I didn't know about these gigantic mountains of toxic shit and molten shit. Like, how much of how much is this just because they've been able to kind of do it without people being aware of the consequences? I think it's huge. I think that's 90% of the reason I'm here, I think, is because I think people don't have a connection to their food, you know? Two percent, what less than two percent of people in the in the U.S. are farmers. You know, wow. Most people just have no sense of the world that's out there. When I drive around in Ohio farm country, I see advertisements you've probably never seen, right? Extendamax, you know, seed thing. Mm. This cool herbicide. They're marketing. The companies are marketing to a very small clientele. And those decisions that are being made to that small clientele affect all of us. And I think that's why, you know, we live removed from that and just simply don't have that connection to it. And I, I think you're absolutely right. I think part of you said, what can people do? Ask questions. Like when you're eating somewhere, where is this coming from? You know, what, if you're talking to a farmer, what's your farm like? You know, if you go, if you have the ability to go to a farmer's market and talk about those things. And again, um, I, I think we, that that connection is key to the story. But you said something like, "Can we pivot?" Here's the pro here's the big problem, Joe. Okay, <clears throat> all of what we've talked about is based on petrochemicals and on fossil fuels. Eighty percent of what Monsanto was making came from oil, natural gas, or coal. 80, by the 80s, 80% 80 of their product lines were coming from, from, from fossil fuels. The reason they became a seed company was because they saw that. They knew that so much of what they were making was coming from petrochemical feedstocks. So they started trying to make more money off selling seeds and getting into the seed business, which they, weren't, they didn't even own a single seed company before the 1980s. So they pivoted in part because of the energy crisis of the 1970s when oil prices rose. They're like, oh my gosh, 80% of what we make comes from this raw material that's now really expensive in the 70s. And that's why Monsanto said, ooh, we've got to get out of this business of making all these PCBs and all that stuff. They hung on to some of their brands, Roundup, for example, because it was so profitable for them. But they tried to get rid of a lot of the other chemicals. And so... They got it. They knew that there's this dependence on petrochemicals and fossil fuels that we still have. The problem is the market is not going to force 
industry to change right now because we've seen this boom in oil and gas production in the United States. And part of that's because of fracking that's happened over the last several decades, right? We see this huge spike. So the economy is saying, keep on producing petrochemicals. It's safe. It's great. But the ecology is saying, you cannot, the environment saying, you cannot keep doing that, right? If you keep doing that, uh, we're going to keep seeing the cycle of weed resistance developing, and, and farmers are going to be kind of locked into that system. So the biggest thing I'd say is that if, if we're going to fix our food system, we have to get away from that fossil fuel dependency, right? We have to get away from this economy that was built at a time when there was so much oil, right? In the 20s and 30s, we're producing all this stuff that made everything around us, including our food, and recognize that we have to start shifting to regenerative agriculture because, it, you know, ostensibly, we won't have to be so dependent on those fossil fuel feedstocks. How much of, um, how much of fossil fuel products can be replaced with organic things like things like uh, I, know, I know that there are certain plastics that are made with plant fibers? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and, and it's actually, on the one hand, it sounds like we're, we're making progress. You said the plant, let's just say a plant bottle. Is a great right. example. Coca Cola has the plant bottle. Do they? Yeah, a, a um, biodegradable plant bottle. Yeah, and if Jamie, there, there is a label for the plant bottle. If it, it, that's really interesting. Now, are they making this out of hemp, or are they using other plants? That's what I asked, right? So I started looking at it, and I was like, okay, what is this made out of? Yeah, sugarcane mm, byproducts. Sugarcane. So pause, right? Oh, I mean, think about environmental sustainability of sugarcane production. Probably, in, in the scale of history, one of the worst monocrop. Oh, really? I mean, when you think about not only the, 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 the ecological, you know, we're talking about tropical regions that have to be you know, completely changed into these monocrop farms. It's a huge impact, not to mention the health cost of all the sugar that's out there. Um, so sugarcane byproducts. And the only reason you can make a plant bottle out of that sugarcane is because of that fossil-fueled agricultural system that makes sugarcane so uh, big and oh, so, no. you know, that it's everywhere, because right? Because it's inefficient. Yeah, because now you have, the only reason you can make a throwaway plastic bottle made of sugarcane is because you're producing so much sugarcane from all that synthetic petrochemical agricultural system. Jesus. Yeah. What a bummer. So it's pretty crazy. And, you know. What about hemp? Um, by the way, uh, I do don't know if you're plastic. Able. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to see if this one over here, um, <clears throat> Jamie, sorry, the uh, third over. Yeah, one more. I just want to see if this one has. The Coca-Cola biodegradable packaging. Uh, Not a viable option, it says. New Coke bottle made entirely from plants. Okay, I just want you to notice a couple of things on this bottle. So when we're looking at it, it says 100%. It's kind of blurry, but it's okay. 100% recyclable plastic. Mm. And I always joke at my students, what does recyclable mean, you know? Well, it could be recycled. Part of this is greenwashing labels. Like, it's 100% recyclable. Well, technically, almost anything's 100% recyclable. Like, you could, it's a bowl. You could recycle it, but is it actually recyclable? Right. The other thing it'll say on there, and for years, it said up to 30% plant-based materials. Up to well, up to could mean zero plant-based material. Oh, there you go. There. Up to 30% made from plants. Oh, Do you see the man. cleverness of it? How it's, dirty. It's like, well, it could be 1%.
Yeah, or it could be one half of one percent, or zero. Yeah, <laughs> you know, oh, got up to right. It could be zero. Could be it could zero. Be just plastic. So that's where I'm. That we have to going back to asking hard questions. We got to get beyond this BS, right? Well, all the labeling should be illegal. It's misleading. That's like to up to zero percent poison, <laughs> <laughs> right? Up to thirty yeah. percent, and then recyclable. You see what I'm saying? Like yeah. even got a trademark on it. You could recycle. Oh, look how they did it. Yeah, exactly. Leaf turns into bottle, turns into leaf. And look, yes. I'm sounding pretty pessimistic here. And you well, mentioned hemp, right? But yeah. like, I mean, you're right. There are certain products. I think that's what we want to say. Okay, cool. So what plant-based material is sustainable to grow Right. where you could potentially make these these products? That's the kind of questions I think all of us should be asking. And I think hemp, it sounds interesting for me. Um, I don't know all about science. That at all? A um, little bit. I had a friend who actually, after I wrote the book, wanted us to, to go into this industry and he was like what do you think and i was like sounds interesting to me mm. i'll say it's a lot better than sugar cane when i think about environmental footprint you know well in the years back um my company on it when we were first starting to sell hemp protein we had to buy it from canada oh we wow. couldn't grow it in america so we were getting our hemp from canada and then we were re-importing it into the United States because it was illegal at the time um, to grow hemp here. Wow. But it was legal to have it and sell it. Right. Yeah. It's just goofy. Hemp yeah. is a really good source of protein. It's uh, it's filled with amino acids. It's got a, like a full amino acid profile. And if you get good hemp hearts, like a good high-quality hemp seed, when they um, they break it down, it's very biodigestible. It's very easy for your body to break down. Yeah, I think to your point, we've got to make if we're going to use plants, it's got to be the right plant. Yeah, corn is the other thing you often hold out. I just talked to you. You know, we just talked right. about corn. It's like it's disaster. just a disaster because it's it's all tied into the same system. And the only reason it's so cheap that you can have a throwaway container like that. And throwaway, I mean, like, you know, you can drink it once, as we do, like, at a party or whatever, and, like, oh, well, it's done. Well, so it would seem to, to go ahead. Uh, part of it, I would just say, is, like, I actually saw this when I first started, you know, listening to your podcast and, and watching. I noticed that you have this. Metal cups. Yeah, yeah. and I was, like, awesome, yeah. reusable, and, like, you know. Yeah, we have uh, a filter machine that filters our water. And we used to have plastic bottles, and then I was, like, what are we doing? We fucking just throwing bottles away every day. And those bottles, by the way, even though you throw them in the recycle bin, they don't really get recycled. It's too expensive. I found that out, that they mostly get thrown into uh, landfills. Yeah. thirty. Per so I read a lot about recycling of plastic bottles, and here's the data. I mean, 30% of plastic bottles used in the United States, PET plastic bottles, get recycled. 30%. Yeah, so 70% ends up landfills. in landfills and everything else. But, but to that point, I'll just say this, you know— um, part of it is about what you're doing here. Like, so do we need that throwaway container? Right. And most asking those questions. Most of the most of the time, it's you know, it's it's a shift in in thinking as opposed to we need a new technology or the new plant based material. But is it possible to use plants for all the shit we use fossil fossil fuels for? And not be tied into this monocrop agricultural system that relies on herbicides. Because it seems like, I mean, I don't know much about growing hemp, but I got to imagine that if you're growing, you know, 100,000 acres of hemp, you're, you're going to have a lot of fucking pesticides yeah, and exactly. herbicides. And you're going to have, 
Well, part of that, you know, part of it is trying to work with nature. One thing to do is to try and diversify a little bit your your agricultural system so you, you don't create that buffet for pests, you know? But, but would you be able to get the same sustainable yield, like like a yield that you could use to make all these bottles of Coca-Cola and all the, you know? You know, Oof, you know predicting whether you could do all the bottles of Coca-Cola, I don't know. But Are I, we fucked? That's my question. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not. You don't think I, so? I don't. You know, it's funny. Uh I, I'm actually a big optimist, but after reading this, writing this book, I was like, man, I come off as a pretty bad pessimist. Um, but I, I, I don't think so. I think what we're seeing right now is some pretty smart things happening in agriculture. Regenerative agriculture, as you know, as you've been talking about, is actually not becoming a niche thing. It's becoming like a much broader accepted way of doing things. It's an option for a percentage of the people. It is. I, I, but I, I think your point's well taken. Can we create billions of throwaway plastic bottles that are made of plants, I actually think the question is, we shouldn't do that. Like, we should rethink the way we consume. Mm. Like, what's wrong with having a reusable container right. as opposed to needing a throwaway? That throwaway culture was a product of that period of, we could just produce whatever we want because we've got tons of oil. Yeah, We're moving away from that because well, we have to. It's funny because when I was a kid, no one had a water bottle. Yeah. You just drank water out of a glass. Like, it didn't exist. And it, then all of a sudden, it's like they were everywhere, like cell phones, right? There was no cell phones. Now cell phones are everywhere. When we were kids, we just had a glass of water. Like, no one took a fucking water bottle everywhere, <laughs> like a weirdo. <laughs> like a weirdo. If your friend showed up at your house with a water bottle, you're like, Bob, what are you doing? What? Why do you have you? a water bottle on you? Yeah. I mean, but also think about how silly we're going to look. Like, yeah. I think as a historian, I look back at our time. Like, wh- what are people, like, 100 years from now going to look back at us? Oh, yeah. Like, think about how s- insane this is. Right. Wait a minute. They took a finite natural resource, and they turned it into a container that they used once. Right. And then they threw it away? Right. Like, who what were the these people fuck? from the, the 2000s, whatever? Yeah. It's weird. And also, like, a lot of the drinking water that people buy is not from a spring. It's just tap water. They take tap water and they filter it, and then they sell it to you. Oh, let me tell you that. This is nuts, okay? I'm going to give you a number. That's, if you're drinking bottled water out there, listen up. This is important, okay? Dasani bottled water, which is Coca-Cola's Coca-Cola. brand. Yeah. It was called Dasani, but I had to look this up. Why are they calling it Dasani? It turns out it was just like totally a marketing thing. They're like, they sat in a room for hours. And they're like, Dasani, it sounds refreshing. It comes from nothing. Um, I went and looked at this, okay? So I went and looked because I live in Atlanta. So I went and looked at our water bill and we're in Fulton County. So I looked at what that water bill was for a gallon of water or whatever. Now I must, I must have looked at something smaller. And then I, can, I went to the Kroger and got a Dasani bottle of water. And at same volume and quantity, I compared the price, okay, of how much you're paying for bottled water versus if you just drank that water out of your tap. And here in Austin, the water's great. So, um, you know, people do that. So what, what would happen if you did that? What was the comparison? I crunched the numbers. And it was like, okay, whoa. It's not, it wasn't 10 times more expensive, which would have been like a huge markup for the company. It wasn't 100 times more expensive. It wasn't even 1,000 times more expensive. It was 1,900 times more expensive to drink that bottled water than to drink that water out of the tap. And it's like, why on earth would I ever pay for that, considering just how expensive it is? And if you look at the bottle, it says 
repurposed public tap water. It is tap water. You know, they, they put it through a filtration system. But not much different than a Brita, right? Exactly. Actually, I use an APEC filter. Um, it's like a re- five-layer reverse osmosis filter underneath my, my um, sink, and partially because I've been researching about water supplies and, like, lead and water and stuff. And it's kind of nuts what's out there. I'm not sure which system we use, but it is some sort of a – it's a big machine that filters our stuff out that yeah. we have here. Yeah, yeah. That you just – you know, you press a button and the cold water comes out or the hot water, but it's all filtered out. But Yes, and, you know, and you don't have to constantly go get that bottle that costs 1900 whatever it was, 1,900 times more. And that's at a time, by the way, where our – taps are you know our pipes are kind of crumbling it's like why are we spending so much money on the stupid bottled water when we could be fixing our our taps and cleaning it up as well mm. um so yeah the bottled water thing it's just kind of and then you've got the plastic so it's like this again a hundred years from now we think of it as just so normal and it's like they're gonna think this is insane yeah for sure the plastic is gonna be a thing where they're gonna be baffled like how we allowed the pacific garbage patch to get so big before we did anything and how literally a 19 year old kid figured out how to make this machine and he's a boy on slot it's the only guy that i know that's figured out how to do something to mitigate it but even then like how much can he mitigate like how it's we're still making plastic and then they find birds with like all the, all these bottle caps. And what does California do? Well, no more straws, man. <laughs> straws. I saw a straw in a turtle's nose. And there's the discussion about the how many uh, like those canvas bags do you have? It's like wait a minute. There's now more like canvas bag plastic pollution than canvas bags. You know, like when you have those bags that you take to the grocery store that are reusable, oh. they're canvas. But the problem is like. Every conference, every show, every everyone's giving out these re- these reusable oh. canvas bags, and it's like it's got to be better than plastic, though. At least that's yeah. Recyclable. I mean, but the the problem is like it's the same problem of like you know that kind of we've got to produce more of this stuff year one year than the next. Well, the crazy thing is the paper straw. The paper straw is going to solve it all while you have plastic water bottles. Like this is nuts. Like you have all these plastic water bottles, but you've just done with. What's the ratio of straw to water bottle? <laughs> I don't like, know. It can't even be close. It's got to be like 30 to 1. Yeah, right? exactly. But you got the water straw. To as long as you get the straw, yeah, have Those straws suck, the... too. They're not as good. If you had a water bottle that was made out of paper and just started <laughs> deteriorating at the rate that straw did, yeah. you'd never even be able to keep water on the shelf. Yeah. Well, the water hard... bottles that are made out of paper, they're like waxy. You know, they have like that stiff, and it seems like there's metal in the, the paper. Yeah. And it's like an aluminum surface I'm to it or something. It. Yeah, back to your point. Like I'm fine. Like you know, yeah. just drinking. But but I will say that, you know, it, it is funny with the the other thing that's happening with the plastic bottles is they're like we're getting more efficient. Like we're making we're making bottles with less plastic. And mm, this that is, doesn't mean anything. It, and the same thing with water. We're using less water to produce the bottled water. Uh, there's a concept called Jevons paradox uh, in economics. It's this guy from the 1860s. He said, "Don't efficiency is going to kill us, folks." Because his argument is that when you start making something more efficient, you actually have incentivized the use of that natural resource. Uh, and he's like, this paradox is, yes, you're more efficient, but over time you're actually going to use more of it. Uh, so I think you know we're at a point where we just have to fundamentally rethink things, I guess is what we're getting to here. Like, like instead of saying, how do we design that throwaway container? Say, do we need that stupid throwaway container? This is just fine. You yeah, know? But I, th- I think the message needs to get out on – 
at scale. You know, it needs to get out to a, a large number of people. And I don't, I don't really see that happening right now. It seems like the message is really with a few conscious people that are kind of aware of it, that make choices that are different. But overall, there's more people than ever before and more people that aren't making those choices than are. Yeah. And it seems like the consumption continues to increase you know, exponentially. It does. I mean, I will say I will say a shout out to students again at Ohio State. Um, again, CBUS, a Columbus uh, shout out that, you know, I get to walk into that room and you have younger guests on the, on the show too where you get to talk to them. Um, I think they get it. Yeah, and they probably get it more than the older folks do. Yeah, it, it's really like jarring actually to walk in there and I'll be like, okay, here's this thing and it's a problem and they're like, we know, <laughs> you know, yeah. and like we're on it. And uh, on the other hand, I also think it's a little bit. I don't think it's fair for us. Um, and I'm stealing this from somebody who who maybe see this actually because I was like, it's your generation. You're going to help us. You're going to solve it. And this this person told me she she said she said, don't put this on them. Yeah, you know, like let them go have a party. Let them go have some fun. You know. There, there is a certain degree of people are like the new generation's going to solve everything instead of being like, well, we're still here, yeah, and we were part of that problem. It's like you know making the military go now and clean up the Vietnam War, Agent Orange shit. You know, it, like, it, you, you motherfuckers should have taken care of that a long time ago. Exactly, and, and maybe there's another hopeful thing. We're seeing this company finally, maybe not with Agent Orange, but with with some of these other chemicals. Like they're. Look, a vote of no confidence from your shareholders is not a good thing. In other words, you know, the pressure, as you said, what can you do? Well, what people are doing is they're filing lawsuits. You know, they're, they're putting pressure, and we're seeing an effect with Bayer. Like, they were literally worth the price they paid for Monsanto. Yeah. I mean, they lost like half of their value. I mean, it was incredible. What and I, they I have all the these pending was. lawsuits. And they're still there. It's still but the crazy there. thing is the thing that's killing them is the thing they're still selling. So it's essentially that handwritten note, sell the hell out of it for as long as we can. That's what they're doing still. Yeah. That, I mean, it's essentially a version of what we saw. They were like, oh, my God, read that 1969 note. Well, read the fucking 2021 note. <laughs> right. They're on the same game plan, right? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I was I was sitting in that. The, I I bought a share of Bayer stock so I could go to the shareholder training. Oh, really? Yeah. I was like, okay. how much does the share cost? Uh, it was like sixty dollars then. I think it's like I don't know. It's running out like forties. So I mean, it keeps going down. Um, and I remember being like, uh, you know, this is I got to do this. So I did. Um, and the the pandemic hit, so I actually they did everything on Zoom. Mm. So I ended up being able to watch it from home, which kind of sucked because I was looking forward to going to Germany. But, um, but I watched it, and oh my gosh! And this three hours went by like that. But they got questions from shareholders for three hours, two hundred fifty questions, where everyone was like, "What's going on? Why? Are, why do we buy this company? What's up with Dicamba? What's up with glyphosate?" What's happening? The, 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 in other words, we're seeing people asking those questions to the people on top. And, you know, I, I never expected this. you got to understand, when I started writing this, none of those cases had happened. The 2015 decision by who? That wasn't even there. I was really pessimistic then. I was like, dude, these guys got away with so much stuff. So to be a slightly optimistic, like, I'm impressed with how much pressure they're feeling right now. Mm. Like, you know, it it feels almost like, 
like something's changing. And I don't know whether it's the chaos of the times or what, but it, it, this, as a historian, this is somewhat unprecedented. I mean, that it never happened on the history of the German exchange where the shareholders had vo- given a vote of no confidence. That never happened. Wow. So we'll see what, what ends up transpiring. But, but in that meeting, sorry, the, you, you said uh, the thing, they're still doing the same thing. It was crazy. They're like, glyphosate, whatever. We've got all these new technologies. But then they have to say, we're going to sell this herbicide because you're talking to your shareholders and you've just lost everything. To your point, like, what are you wow. going to say? We're going to pull it and, like, our most one of our most profitable products? They're in that pinch. It's like, wow. we've lost everything because of these legacies. We've got this thing that makes us money. What do we do? That's, and you're getting sued from that thing that makes you money. I know. And there's thousands and you're, of pending cases. And you're willing to settle for $15 billion because it's that profitable. That, Joe, I think shows you how stuck we are in a way, right? That shows you just how dependent we are on these petrochemicals, that a company would go to that extreme. I mean, if we weren't dependent, you know, screw it. Yeah. Just get rid of it. But even the firm itself is just so connected to that petrochemical past, it can't let go. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> well, it seems like some because they are being held accountable, and there are yeah, thousands of cases let's pending. Yeah, let's end on that. It seems like progress is being made. So, could you hold up your book and yeah, let people sure. know? Um, put it up in the camera so we sure. can see. Uh, seed money. Did you do the audio version of it? Did yeah, you read there's it? an audio version. Did you read it? I didn't. Uh, Fuck! <laughs> I get so mad. They, never, I, they always want a- actors to read it. But I will say. Uh, uh, the 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 person who read it, uh, Sean, is a, an amazing actor. Fuck Sean! I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, Sean. Great, great, uh, great reader, and and uh, did a better job than I would. No, have No, you would have done a perfect job if you just read it the way you talked today. It would have been perfect. Hey, um, thank you very much, man. I really appreciate it. And that's out now, and the audiobook yes. is out now. It's available. Um, yes. Do you have social media? I'm on Twitter. Yeah, at Bart Elmore. Uh, spell it out for people. At Bart, B-A-R-T-E-L-M-O-R-E. Okay. All word, yeah. um, and Instagram, do you have an Instagram? I don't. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you. Off Stay Facebook the fuck away too. from Facebook. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Really appreciate what you've done. And you, uh, I re- appreciate all your hard work. And, and thanks for coming in here, man. Thank you. It's a pleasure. My thanks pleasure. So yep. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.